Jim, please, don't stop me. Don't let him stop me. It's your career and Captain Pike's life. You must see the rest of the transmission. Bridge to all decks! It is time for a brand spanking new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And guess what? What? Everyone listening... Scott and I are in the same room, in the same place, recording an episode of Enterprise Incidents. This is a very special episode of Enterprise Incidents, because not only are we in the same room, which ensures that the audio levels will be exactly equal, but this is the first episode of Enterprise Incidents that we've done in person since the very beginning, and we have a very very, very special guest to mark the occasion. Yes, hailing from the hard streets of Northern Virginia, actor, voiceover artist, producer, host of more podcasts and shows than I could possibly count, my partner on The Cinephiles, and my very, very good friend, John Roca, the outlaw. Welcome to Enterprise Incidents. Oh, thank you for having me. But am I really here, or is this a projection from Talos 4? We'll oh! find out! We'll find out by the end of the show, for sure. But yeah, I'm very excited to be on the show with you guys. You know, we love doing Star Trek on The Cinephiles, Steve, so I'm excited for us to go bone deep on original series stuff. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about two of my favorite episodes ever in the history of Star Trek, The Menagerie, Parts well, 1 and 2. Well, the, the Menagerie, Parts 1 and 2, it's the only two-part episode of the original series. Mm. So my question for both of you guys, and I want to start with you, John, okay. on this is, when did you see The Menagerie for the first time? As a, as a young kid, I had been a watcher of Star Trek, but it wasn't until The Menagerie, watching that for the first time, maybe seven or eight years old, where I fell in love with Star Trek. This was the episode. These two episodes really? are the ones that wow. made me fall in love with Star Trek, which is why I'm even more honored to be here to talk about it, because I've never talked about my love of The Menagerie on a podcast with anybody. So the, you couldn't think of two better people to do that. But yes, I remember watching it. I remember that was the one I was always waiting for to come on as a kid when they were doing the reruns of the repeats. See that? We've talked about this before. How when we were growing up, because we're all around the same age, I'm not going to say what that age is, but you could probably figure it out. But when we were watching, when we discovered Star Trek, it was on, you know, if we were part of the syndication generation. Yes. So when we were watching Star Trek five nights a week, we had to watch whatever was on. Yeah. So we were watching the episodes that we watch whatever we could get. If we got an episode like sitting on the edge of forever, great. We're down. But if we had to cross over with an episode like, and the children shall eat or the way to Eden, we were stuck with it. So I remember the first time I saw the menagerie, it wasn't until I would say a few years and I'm talking years mm. after I first discovered and really got into star Trek. And here's why, because when I was growing up in Philadelphia, they would show the episodes in production order like we're doing on Enterprise Incidents. But – and they would also, thankfully, as I later found out because of the way that shows were stripped for syndication, yeah. they would show the complete cuts. But for some reason, the Philadelphia station, WPHL, whenever it got – up to the point where they should have shown the menagerie, they never did. They would always cross over from uh, from court martial to shore leave. They would not show the menagerie. And I knew that this episode, this two-part episode existed. And the reason they did not show it, I later found out when I finally saw it, was because they would show it as a TV movie. 
So when I finally saw the menagerie, it was on a Friday night, I would say around the time that the motion picture came out. And so it was like five years after I really got into Star Trek and it was a Friday night and they showed it as an event mm, like mm. A, to, to kind of, I guess, tie in with the motion picture. So it was a Friday night. They showed it as a TV movie, both parts back to back. And that is how I first saw the Menagerie. Wow. Why did Philadelphia have so much more respect for Star Trek than anywhere else? <laughs> why did you get it in production order? Why wasn't it stripped down like the ones that I saw? Mm. And why would they make Star- the Menagerie a full TV movie event? I'll answer that question for you because while we got the episodes in production order and we got the full 50 minutes like it wasn't until i would visit my my extended family in new york where i would saw where i saw star trek on wpix that i i I remember the first episode i saw there was return of the archons Mm -hmm. and they they like scenes were missing and my friend said oh yeah you know they only show like 43 or 44 minutes so I realized how lucky I was to be watching the complete episodes. But the problem was that the, the film stock that they were showing was was very old. Mm. And it was a little, not it was not sharp. It was a little blurry and the colors were a little faded. So after weaning myself on Star Trek for like more than more than a decade like that, when the DVDs finally came out, I remember when my friend showed me where No Man Has Gone Before on DVD and it was so sharp and so clear. I said, well, looks like I'm getting a DVD player. <laughs> um, it's so funny. We, we've, it's come up many times that your memory of how you saw Star Trek, where you were, which episode you saw, what order they came in is so much better than mine. To me, it was just Star Trek. And one of the things that's come up is you seems like from the very beginning were aware of what season you were in and what the order was. I kind of knew there was an order. I kind of knew that those episodes were early and those episodes were late, but I was just, it was just Star Trek. I think the menagerie is where I really started to clue in because that's when I, I was like, oh, there was this other pilot and this is how they figured out how to to use this old footage to give themselves another episode. And I think this is start, sort of, it might even where some of my editor brain came from of the idea of taking footage and using it in a different purpose later on. Right. You know, I think that might be where it comes from. I wanted to ask another thing, John, because, mm-hmm. you know, Scott and I have obviously, we've been talking Star Trek constantly. Sure, sure, sure. We've had many conversations about Star Trek with you on the cinephiles, yeah. but what is your relationship to Star Trek? I know it's a pretty personal show for oh, you. Oh, yeah, it's deep in my heart. I mean, I love it. I love it to pieces. And there's, I mean, I've said this many times, Shatner is essentially my dad. So whenever I watch him as Kirk, that is my father, in, in essence, because he had a lot of the same mannerisms, a lot of the same speech patterns as in the, the Latino version. Wait a minute. <laughs> speech patterns? Yes. <laughs> oh, that I would like to hear. He would just say it like that. He would <laughs> after one word, and then he would just run through. And it was incredible to watch him do these things. But it was such a thing. And I've, and I've said this before. I got to tell Kirk or Shatner that one time at a Comic-Con. And he was so honored to answer the question it was great and but like uh, there's just something about this combination of people and it's so funny we talk about we're talking about the menagerie because the menagerie is what could have been the menagerie is the pilot that could have been this i don't think it would have been as beloved no offense those actors who were cast in that they certainly do a competent job a great job even sort of like major barrett of course but like seeing this crew the original crew the original series crew 
there's a chemistry to them that makes you fall in love with them immediately, makes you gravitate to them. They each have distinct characters. And I think when you're seeing the menagerie, it makes it very, very clear why they made the decision to recast. Again, not an indictment on these other actors. Sometimes it's just the chemistry that works better in a certain combination. So that show taught me right and wrong. It taught me about racism. It taught me about morality. It taught me about friendship. It taught me about love and loss. I mean, City on the Edge of Forever. It, it taught me about so much of um, of the world that as a young kid, when you're a latchkey kid and you have two immigrant parents who are working 12 hours a day and all you have is TV, that show, for whatever reason, was the thing that I gravitated to more. And I, I love and respect Star Wars, but Star Trek is in my bones, and that's what I've... Oh, it's in your bones. Oh, bones. <laughs> uh, but yeah, always. So that's that's my relationship to it. I ne- I'll never stop watching. I mean, I watched Wrath of Khan yesterday by myself. So, you know, I just... I can't stop. It's such a great... Uh, it's one of those pieces of... Fr- of uh, of uh, media that I love to piece. Well, and this is why we're, you know, the three of us are kindred spirits, yeah, you yeah. know, cause we all share that just deep, profound love for the show. Mm. And I, I, I'm so excited because I cannot wait, Scott, to hear you tell me how the hell this episode came about. <laughs> Guys. Well, first of all, John, yeah. I got to tell you. So, you know, hearing your story, how, how personal this was to mm. you, it, it, it's, I, I, of course I completely relate I love. I would. I, I'm just trying to get this image of your dad talking like Shatner. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the greatest. This is the greatest. But you know, the other thing you you're, you pointed out, and I was thinking about this while I was watching a menagerie. Like, how would this crew, Captain Pike and Number One and uh, Jose Tyler and, and this cast, how would they have reacted and acted alongside mm. each other in some of the more prominent ensemble episodes of the original series? And by that I mean like an episode where all the actors, or most of them, like including like you know Chekhov and all those guys, were all there. For yeah. example, look at an episode like the Doomsday Machine. Like that feels like an ensemble episode, mm-hmm. even though Uhura is missing. But like, I would love to sort of have seen Captain Pike and Number One and Doctor Boyce react alongside you know Decker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know what would Captain Pike have done if he was stuck on the constellation? You know, it's just yeah. things that you just sort of like imagine in your head. Maybe someone out there will write a book in an alternative universe <laughs> where, Cap- where Captain Pike was actually, uh, you know, where Jeffrey Hunter actually stayed uh, playing the captain. But yeah. the 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 whole reason that this episode came to be was a mixture of of creativity, inspiration, and most importantly, in the case of the original series, because of just how how limited the budget was. Necessity. Necessity being that this was a show that had never been done before. And uh, to, be, to, to do it on a weekly basis yeah. in 1966, which is something that, that Desilu, the, the production company, was not prepared for. Now, the episode aired on November 17th and 24th, 1966, which made it the 11th and 12th episodes to air, both parts. But it was actually filmed between October 11th and October 18th over the course of five and two-thirds days, which makes it the 16th and 17th episodes to be filmed. Now, here's, here's the interesting part, interesting part, and at least I think it's very, very interesting. And when you really think about the budget and the constraints that this show had in the 1960s. So John and Steve, by this point during the first season of Star Trek, the per-episode budget 
was, can you guess, John? $300,000. How much? $300,000. Uh, two-thirds of that. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, the per episode budget that they had for the original series at okay. this point was $193,500. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's like nothing. nothing yeah. <laughs> you know, even by even those dollars, yeah. yeah. So, so this is a two-part episode. So technically, you're looking at a budget for both parts of $387,000. But as you both know, and as everyone is listening knows, well, most of that footage was already shot. So Gene Roddenberry, this is where part of his brilliance really came in. Now, The Menagerie, which was actually the original title for The Cage. So Roddenberry obviously really liked it, so he used it again. So- Desilu bought, or Desilu got the news from NBC that they were going to buy Star Trek for 16 episodes on March 6th, 1966. So that's, that's when they got the 16-episode order for, you know, hopefully what would be a first season. Right. Now, on, on uh, March 14th, Gene Roddenberry suggested to Herbert F. Salo, Herbert F. Salo was the executive in charge of production at Desilu, he was basically Lucille Ball's right-hand person, the executive who was really, really running the nuts and bolts of Desilu Studios, which also included Mannix and Mission Impossible. So he said to Herb Salo, I think we should plan for the future here. And by that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing Roddenberry, that we're going to run into problems with budget and, uh, and, and time schedule. So we already have this whole pilot 78 minutes it's already filmed we should figure out a way to incorporate that old footage into new footage that we're going to shoot so that we could save money and that if we're running behind we can save on time there was also a third factor gene roddenberry was very proud of the cage which did not sell star trek and was just collecting dust in a vault so he wanted people to see as much footage of the cage as possible so he said to her, her let's do this. Let's figure out a way to write a story that uses the footage of the cage. And, and they, would, they would call this portion the envelope because they, it was an envelope to, to this overall story. Now, on March 21st, the NBC agreed with Gene Roddenberry's proposal. But there was one caveat, and this was a problem. NBC only offer to pay Desilu for one episode, not both of them. Which makes sense. I mean, they because they spent a lot of money already on the well, cage. they did spend a lot of money on the cage. They spent more than $600,000 on wow. the cage. Wow. $600,000. I mean, more than $600,000 in 1964. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But so NBC said, okay, we love this idea, but we're all going to pay you a license fee for one episode, not two. That means that if Desilu accepts this proposal... They're going to lose around $110,000 in licensing fees. So uh, that was a tough pill to swallow, and Desilu did not like that idea. But the good thing about it was this. So the per-episode budget, again, for both of these episodes was $387,000. The total cost of filming the the envelope portion was $221,000. That means they're basically $166,000 under budget on this. 
But when you take out the lost license fee of $110,000, that means that overall, Desilu was still ahead by more than $56,000, which by this point during the production process was crucial because episodes like Balance of Terror and Galileo 7, as we discussed, cost a whole lot of money. Those two episodes cost about $230,000 each. So this savings here was definitely a boost. And in the end, Desilu did win by agreeing to the whole the whole portion of the of the license fee that they had to lose. But it wasn't – this is another interesting facet of the story. It wasn't until close to when they were about to start filming – the envelope portion of the menagerie when Robert H. Justman, the associate producer, finally said to the producers, guys, do we have to pay these people again to use their likeness? And as it turned out, they did have to pay them. Wow. I did not know that. So it's a hidden cost right there. So for doing absolutely nothing, <laughs> Major Barrett got $750. Oh, John Hoyt, who played Dr. Boyce, got $750 and Jeffrey Hunter got $5,000. Now, you would think that Leonard Nimoy would get his usual $1,250 fee, but because he was a regular, he did not get paid. He only got paid for one episode, not two. So Nimoy got screwed. (laughs) It's so funny because, of course, today you'd have to pay them all. And the rules have gotten much more because actors have gotten screwed in situations like this. (laughs) But and of course, of course, what's happened now is, again, our rules are all out of whack because of streaming and that nobody knows quite how to how to do all this. They're still renegotiating contracts. You know, what are the numbers? How many people are seeing? What's it worth? It's all this stuff. It gets real complicated. Well, I also think this is one of the most incredibly unique situations ever. How many shows have ever rebroadcast their own pilot within the failed pilot, rather, or the pilot, the, the pilot they recast within an actual episode during the run of their show? That is a rarity. I've, I don't even know of another situation where I've ever seen the enti- almost the entire pilot be rebroadcast in another episode with a new cast that replaced the cast you're watching. It's unheard of. I, I don't think it's ever happened. I can't think of any. I mean, I can think of shows where there was recast pilots. Right. You know, like the Dick Van Dyke show was one and right. Game of Thrones was a, was recast and a lot of it was reshot. But, right. But they didn't use that footage, you yeah. know, like. Yeah, this isn't like putting Tig Notaro in there for Army of the Dead. This oh, is oh like my gosh. legitimately the whole thing. But, but you know what, John? That's a really great point, too. And, and the thing is, is that, the you know, the result of this, of, of trying to be uh, – practical mm. you know with like we spent more than six hundred thousand dollars on this pilot that's sitting in a vault let's let's make use of it as it turned out the menagerie won the 1967 hugo award mm. for best dramatic presentation <sighs> that makes so much it sense. was the first you know if you include both parts as one story it was the first of four star trek episodes to win the hugo award can you guess the other three Star Trek episodes to win the Hugo Award? And two of them were not even in the original series. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I have to say City on the Edge of Forever. Okay, that's one. That's yes. an easy one. Space Seed? Okay. Uh, the other two come from the next generation. That's what I was going to say. So oh. I would say Inner Light. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Steve, um, you are so good. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of what the other one would be. 
the Offspring. Okay, uh, can you guess, John? No, I can't. Go ahead. Okay, so the fourth episode to win the Hugo Award was the series finale for The Next Generation, All Good Things. Uh, that's a great so choice. So when Bob Justman and, 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 you know, finally at this point, Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry were like, okay, who should we get to direct the envelope portion of the menagerie? So they actually went to Robert Butler, who directed The Cage. And you would think that Robert Butler, who directed The Cage, would look back with pride on the fact that he directed this thing that set the standard and set the template for like basically the Star Trek that we have loved and adored for 55 years. So when he was offered the chance to direct, Robert Butler said, no thanks, I've been there, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) But Roddenberry still had an idea to either – release the cage as a TV movie or release it as an actual feature film. But in both cases, they only had 78 minutes of footage from the actual pilot. So they would have had to film more and Jeffrey Hunter wanted nothing to do with it. So then Roddenberry had an idea to film the portion where the SS Columbia crashes on Talos four. But in the end they went with the two part menagerie. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we're all we're all happy with that. But I think for so many people who watch the menagerie, like, how did you feel when you uh, because the menagerie, you know, hit you so hard and you love it so much? Yeah. I want to know, Johnny, what did you think of Anson Mount's performance of Captain Pike on Star Trek Discovery? I, I think it saved the show. You want my honest opinion? I want your honest opinion. Yeah, I think Anson Mount saved the show. I think Sadiqua Martin-Green is a fantastic actress. I think she's incredible to put the the pressure of Star Trek on your shoulders. First, uh, first like, lead woman. I know Jane Wade did that with... But, like, this is where she's, like, we're following her journey, right? But Anson Mount saved the show. The way he played Pike, the way he brought that old-school Star Trek feel... Uh, all of it, and the, seeing him in the yellow, that was just great. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right? But, like, he brought that much-needed return for the older fans or the fans who, who knew the original series or loved the original series. He brought that energy and that atmosphere back, and it was a great combo. I've enjoyed uh, uh, season two and three of Discovery, and I'm looking forward to the one. Strange New Worlds. Yeah, Strange New Worlds coming with him and Rebecca Romaine and others in this thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I absolutely agree. I, it, it's so fun. I totally agree too. Mm. And it, what's so funny is that every single Star Trek series, except the first one, took a while to figure out what it was. Good point. Yeah. Um, the original series, that's not true. They right. jump right in. Um, but what's so crazy to me, and it's come up over and over again, and I love this so much, is that this show comes out of people being cheap. And I love that <laughs> is that and because we talked about where, why do they have transporters? Because that was cheaper than building the ship. Yeah. Like what you what you told me, which I hadn't thought about it. Why do the Romulans have a cloaking device? Because they couldn't afford to do special effects. There's so <laughs> many there's so many reasons where they made they took a negative and turned it into a positive. And it's like, why do we have the menagerie? Because we shot all this stuff and right. we want to use it. We spent all this money. Want to put it yeah. on on screen? I love that. Well, well, like in the third season episode, let that be your last battlefield. So remember Beale's ship, like like their Lokai's already aboard the Enterprise, and then they're you know they're being chased by another ship, and and it's it's Beale, you know Frank Gorshin, and uh, Spock goes, uh, it's invisible. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, you know, great way to save money. But John, I I agree with you a hundred thousand percent that Anson Mount saved Discovery. Mm. I. I didn't love the first season. 
what I loved about the first season was Sonequa Martin-Green, yep, who absolutely. I thought is just, I mean, she's a phenomenal actor, but I just didn't feel like Discovery felt like Star Trek to me. In the, in the, the first episode of the second season of Discovery, when Captain Pike is being aboard the Discovery and he steps off the transporter platform, my eyes opened wide yeah. and my jaw hit the floor and I started to apply. I stood up and I applauded <laughs> and I said, thank you. Thank you for saving the show. Thank yeah. you for making Star Trek feel like Star Trek again. And I think that the third season of Discovery was very, very good. But I am so, so, so excited for Strange New Worlds. Yeah. You know, this is the show that I think fans especially have been very forthright in saying that this is the this is the version of Star Trek, the new version of Star Trek we've wanted all along. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're finally getting it. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And you know what's while they were shooting this episode, there also were some very interesting things going on in the world. Mm. So on mm. October eleventh, Lyndon Johnson signed the Child Nutrition Act, and that created Things that we are just so used to today, like the school lunch program and the school breakfast program. And I think what's so important, you know, Scott, we've talked a lot about the fact that this is being filmed right in the middle of Vietnam. Hmm. One of the other things that's happening is this is the Great Society. And so it's interesting that we have this aspirational show at the same time as we have things like Medicare coming in and, and that we have the idea of creating a better version of America. Civil rights legislation. Civil rights right. legislation. Yeah. All of this is, and I think that's connected to Star Trek. Yeah. I think this is projecting forward. Um, here's a funny one. On October 14th, my birthday, I'm, I'm two years away from finding me yet. I haven't showed up. <laughs> but it is the, which I didn't know, that was the 900th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings when William the Conqueror mm. conquered England. Mm. Um uh, and they had a big, big event. Um, the U.S. Department of Transportation was created on October 15th. The National Historic Preservation Act was created on October 15th. And on October 16th, Grace Slick performed for the first time with Jefferson Airplane in San Francisco in the hate. And across the bay in Oakland on October 16th, the Black Panther Party was formed. Wow. 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 See, like when you hear what was going on the week that they filmed the Star Trek episode, mm -hmm. like I, I feel like the the the, uh, the country aged uh, a year every week during yeah. the 60s. Yeah. Right. I mean, there was so much going on between Vietnam and civil rights. The Cold War, the counterculture, the, the the generation gap, certainly the music, yeah. okay, and certainly TV and film. I mean, there was such, such a fundamental shift in in everything that 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 happened in the '60s, and Star Trek was right there, and in, in some of its very best cases, reflecting that in an action adventure series. I always feel like the '60s and '70s are when America went to college. I've always felt that with those two decades, you're discovering themselves, expanding their minds, exploring the social issues, all of that. And this, that's what you do in college. What, what's funny, and this has come up, it's Scott and I talking quite a bit about it, but is I, the other shows that are on TV at the time were totally disconnected from this. Oh yeah. Like Star Trek was, you know, Dragnet, I think was on after Star Trek <laughs> and you know, this is Gilligan's Island. This is the Beverly Hillbillies. This is, um, you know, Bonanza is still going on. Gunsmoke is still going on. And it's like all of those shows are completely disconnected from the 60s. Mm. And when you're watching, actually, you know, in the second season of Star Trek. So, so the, you know, of course, the, the urban legend is that Star Trek did awful in the ratings. And while it wasn't, it wasn't the highest rated show of the year, no question about it. 
it actually did a lot better than most people give it credit for because mm. in most cases, it was the highest rated show on NBC that night. Mm. Now, where it got clobbered, like for the second season, do you know what show like beat the crap out of Star Trek week after week? No, I don't. Gomer friggin' Pyle. <laughs> <laughs> like, when was the last time you went to a Gomer Pyle convention? Yeah, right. <laughs> Jim Neighbors, great singer. <laughs> uh, shall we? Shall we do it? Shall we go into the menagerie? Let's go. Steady as she goes. <laughs> so uh, it's so. What's so crazy about this one is I think maybe more, almost more than almost anything else we've done. I think this feels different in production order than it does in broadcast order. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because in broadcast order, it's pretty early. This is like the 11th episode or something. Right, that's right. And it happens before court martial. Mm-hmm, Whereas mm-hmm. in broadcast order, it's right after. And so we end up at Starbase 11. It's really similar to what happened in the last episode in court martial. Mm-hmm. Um, and we show up and the, on Starbase 11, Commodore Mendez is going, what are you guys doing here? Mr. Spock received a transmission from the Starbase, a message from the former commander of the Enterprise Fleet, Captain Pike urgently requesting that we divert here. Impossible. Well, Commodore Mendez is played by Malachi Throne. And like, what an accomplished actor. I mean, this is a this is an actor who has worked steadily, like like very, very steadily throughout the years. So first of all, uh, The Menagerie was not his first brush with Star Trek because mm. in the original pilot version of The Cage, he was the voice of the Keeper. Oh. So the voice was redubbed for The Menagerie, but wow. in the the pilot version of the cage. It was it was Malachi Throne. He was also on The Outer Limits with uh, mm-hmm. with William Shatner in yeah. an episode called Cold Hands, Warm Heart. It just in terms of genre TV, he was False Face in Batman. He did Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and he was uh, a regular on the series It Takes a Thief. And it turns out that that he would have another brush with Star Trek much much later. Working again with Leonard Nimoy in the two-part episode, Unification. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, wait, wait, let's not forget about Miss Piper. Yes. Because when they beam down to Starbase 11, Miss Piper is very flirtatious with, Kirk. with Captain Kirk. Well, so is Kirk. And she is, he, is, he is the stud right back to yeah, her, isn't he? Is. he? So that's Julie Parrish, who had worked with Jeffrey Hunter on the TV series Temple Houston. She played Linda Lewis on the series Good Morning World. And she played Betty Anderson Harrington Court Harrington in Return <laughs> to Peyton Place. And then finally playing Joan Diamond in Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, wow. that's how I first saw her in my older years, right? right? I didn't even clock her in Menagerie as someone to watch. But also um, died young. She died young, and so did uh, the actress who plays Vina. She also died oh, young. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's like this an interesting episode for that, for sure. But it's the Commodores, I mean, the, the he's just, fan. that voice of his is just stellar. Well, well, we'll get to Susan Oliver. Yeah, yeah, right. And There's boy, a, lot to to Susan, yeah, Susan a lot to cover sure. with Susan sure. Oliver. So I have a, I have a question. So yeah. his this is Commodore Jose Menendez. Jose. And, and first of all, again, this has come up over and over again. Star Trek is p- 
putting forward people of different ethnicities in very powerful positions. But my other question is in the man trap, there's the totally bizarre moment where he, where Kirk talks to Jose and says, you'll get your chili peppers. Is that the one? Is this the Jose who wanted some chili peppers? Tell Jose he'll get his, it has to be. Could be. And you know what? For the sake of chronology, because we're going in production order and because, you know, these episodes have stood, stood alone and it was so rare. It was so rare that they acknowledged canon like in by any other name when, when Kirk says about the, the energy barrier, oh yeah, we've been there. Or in the, the that which survives, and when you know Sue was talking about the silicon creature on Jaina Six, uh, it was very very rare that they did that. But for the sake of what we're doing, we're saying that this is all canon. There is a through line <laughs> where we keep referencing the evil or the dark Kirk from uh, uh, enemy the enemy within, within and yeah. we also reference. We keep going back to reference the the bluff and the corbomite maneuver. So, for the sake of chronology, I'm going to say yes. It's the same Jose. <laughs> if my first officer states that he received a transmission, Jim, so, I'm not doubting anyone's word. Jose, I'm simply telling you it's impossible. Why? You don't know. You actually don't know what's happened to Captain Pike. I'm sorry to have to be the one to show you. He's upstairs in the medical section. And we go to intensive care. And McCoy is there and they tell a story of Captain Pike heroically rescuing a bunch of cadets when there was some sort of malfunction. And McCoy says, the Delta Rays. And it seems like all of them know that this is really, really bad. And by the way, this this moment was referenced and we see a glimpse of it. And so does Pike in the Discovery Mm -hmm. second season episode through the Valley of Shadow, like. He, what he's, so in this, in this universe, in the Discovery universe, Pike knows that this is coming, that something bad is going to happen to him. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I, and I, I I remember this moment so distinctly again, as a kid, as a kid in single digit ages, seeing the spin, the turnaround and seeing the face of Pike and what he looked like and that, that wheelchair and the beep has stayed with me since. I mean, I can forget other things from other episodes of Star Trek, but that wheelchair and the beep will always stay with me. And that big scar on his yeah, face, and the scar, like like he, the scar, yeah, like he definitely. Uh, whatever happened, you know, when pulling out those kids, uh, I mean, it, it cost him definitely the quality of his life. Now, now here's the thing: that was obviously not Jeffrey Hunter playing Christopher Pike in the Menagerie. So, according to Roddenberry. Jeffrey Hunter was in Spain. He was filming, which is true, but it was also just Jeffrey Hunter didn't want to have anything to do with Star Trek anymore. He, he did his thing and he, you know, they moved on and he didn't want to come back. He didn't want to film any new footage. So they had to figure out a way to have the character represent. So they had this horrible, horrible injury and they had to find someone who still kind of looked like Jeffrey Hunter and that was when they found Sean Kenny. So Sean right. Kenny was 24 years old when he played Pike. And, you know, Roddenberry told him, he said, hey, you know, there's, you're not going to have any lines. You're going to be covered with makeup, stuck in this contraption. But it was Sean Kenny's first produced credit. So, of course, he said yes. And ultimately, when it was all over, Roddenberry was so appreciative of the sacrifices that Sean Kenny made that he made sure that he got a speaking part as Lieutenant DePaul in the episodes Arena and uh, huh. A Taste of Armageddon. 
<laughs> That's great. What, what, so again, this is the same thing. We can't get the thing that we want. We can't get Jeffrey Hunter. How are we going to do this? The whole plot is based on not being able to get Jeffrey Hunter. They turn a weakness into a strength. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, by the way, I, as a kid, I just remember being so shook and yeah. stunned and i'll just say something heavy and i'm just gonna say just for a second not dwell on it but my dad died of als hmm. which is where he slowly lost control of his body and lost his ability to speak and it was like i i thought of captain pike and yeah. in the chair you know what? um and it's so and and what we learn is that his only way of communicating is with a flashing light one flash for yes two for no and they and when Mendez, Menendez says, these gentlemen want to see you, he says no. Do you think he knows what Spock is going to do? Yes, oh, 100%. I think yeah, he Spock knows. Okay. Um, and, and this is, I'm going to say it here, and I'm going to touch on main point, many points. I don't think this episode makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> but, but a lot of it is Captain Pike. Is, is, yeah. is what is he thinking at each point? Because at this point, he seems adamantly against this idea well because he's a captain and also because spock's his man and he doesn't want spock to put his career in danger oh maybe to that's sacrifice. What it is. i think okay. that's the reason he he and and spock stay he lets spock stay behind yep. but it's to reiterate to him stop doing this the right, two yeah. beeps are stop because you will get in trouble uh, this happened to me this is my course in life i'm a captain I have to sacrifice things sometimes. And I went in there willingly and saved mm. those people and sacrificed myself to save those young trainees. I, I absolutely think that that Pike knows what Spock is about to do. Captain Pike, may I remain for a moment? And I agree with you, John. I think that the reason he is so against it is because of, because of pr protocol and procedure. Yeah. And, uh, and he, basically, if he, if he knows that Spock is going to violate orders, if he knows that Spock is going to put his new captain yes. in a very, very tight spot. Yeah. So, so look at the numbers here. When, when Kirk says, oh, yeah, Spock served with him for a long time. And Spock, uh, you know, of course, says, 11 years, four months, five days. 11 years, four months, five days. Right. Now, based on the star date that is given in the menagerie, the first number in that star date is a three. Now, the, the way I look at the star dates for the original series is that the first number of the star dates, usually four digits and a point and then another number. The first number of the star date indicates the year that the Enterprise is on its five-year mission. Oh, interesting. So, okay. you know, the, the very first episode that was filmed, which was, uh, you know, Where No Man Has Gone Before with Kirk, uh, it was 1312.8. So that means it was the first year that the Enterprise was in space. This star date, the first number is a three. So this is the third year that the Enterprise has been in space. So so Spock has served with Pike for 11 years, four months, and five days. He's only served with Kirk for three years. So his loyalty to Pike, for he has almost quadrupled the time that he has been with Kirk. So, you know, but Pike is, again, he's knows like all of the... Uh, you know, the, the mayhem that this is going to cause, that this is going to, especially that being a captain of not just a starship, but the Enterprise. Yeah. And that what this will do to the current captain of the Enterprise. He knows that, that he's he's not cool with that. And he would rather stay in the situation he is in than risk everything that is about to happen. Right. Always thinking of his people. Yeah. I have never disobeyed your orders before, Captain. <laughs> 
this time I must. I know. I know it is treachery and it's mutiny. But I must do this. I have no choice. And the music saying, no! no. <laughs> I will say this. The reason this episode works in the order when you watch it in the first season is because you've had enough time to accept the relationship between Kirk and Spock, which makes this such a shocking thing to see Spock. Agreed. Violate yeah. Kirk, or, or trick Kirk, rather, betray Kirk in a way. And, and you see the half-human side of Spock come out. This is a rarity in the series. And to have him... In essence, you're watching the half-human side of him who loves Captain Pike take over the Vulcan side of him or work with the Vulcan side of him, but be the predominant part of him that is controlling what he's doing throughout these two episodes. It's fantastic. Uh, also, when you think about just in just the short time that they have been together, mm-hmm. all that has happened, we've talked about how the turning point in establishing the relationship between you know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy was the enemy within. Yeah. And how, you know, there's the moment in The Enemy Within where Spock is, like, analyzing the situation, saying, you know, we have a great chance to observe good and evil in a person. And and then he looks at Kirk and says, if I seem insensitive to what you're going through, it's the way I am. And so, I mean, that was a touching moment. Mm-hmm. And then in, like, in Naked Time, that scene in the briefing room, you know, yeah. we've got a risk of full power start. The engines are imploded. And he goes, when I feel friendship for you, I'm ashamed. I mean... They've been through so much in such a short period of time. Like you said, Steve, this is a show that hit the ground running immediately. Mm-hmm. There was no build up to the third or fourth season when it really got good. It was good right the hell yep. away. Mm-hmm. And a, a big reason for that is because of the dynamic with the characters. And that is why what Spock is about to do hurts so much. Mm-hmm. It, it really, really does. And here's the thing to me. And, and, and John, one of the things we've been doing on the show is creating a continuity is because normally we don't think about Star Trek. It's just each episode is on its own, but we've been sort of thinking about the development of these characters. And the big thing that I think is I think Captain Pike was a really good captain. I think Spock respected him, felt loyalty to him, cares about him, but it is not like the relationship he has with Jim Kirk. I think that this yes. is the most profound friendship of his life. It's his, that's a dad relationship. Mm. Him and Kirk are best friends. There's yeah. a difference there because as you see in the, in the uh, pilot episode, that's a completely different take. That's a young Spock. That's an aggressive Spock. That's a Spock right. that's trying to prove himself. So there's a different relationship you have with someone like Pike in that situation. And now at the beginning of act one, it's an argument with the Commodore about how this could have happened. And it gets a little bit heated because yeah. Kirk is like... Spock stated he received a message for us to come here. He entered same in his log. That's all the proof I require. And Kirk has no reason to suspect that Spock would ever lie to him. Well, and I think it's more than that because, again, in broadcast order, court martials after this. But in production order, it's before this. Literally, the last thing Kirk went through was the logs on the Enterprise being wrong. And so the fact that now, again, the logs, something is wrong, he has every single reason to distrust this and to trust his first officer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kirk. I think Spock banked on that. Spock banked on Kirk being adamant that there's no way Spock would have ever 
fabricated he even accuses the commoners yeah well they can uh, they can do voices they can do blah 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 they can say rewrite things say anything yeah right which we see later Spock do with those things that he's putting in responding to the Enterprise so little seeds being laid brilliantly by Roddenberry the thing is Spock has really thought this through yes he has and and if anybody is going to think anything (laughs) through it's going to be Spock as we see he left no stone unturned we we call down to like the records computer room and they ask has anyone been messing with the computer and the guy says negative commodore we've checked and double checked everything possible and who shows up down in that room but mr spock yeah sneaks up behind him and we get the famous vulcan <laughs> the, the right the famous but it would be in the script as the uh f v n p spock applies the f v n p the famous vulcan neck <laughs> that's how it was written, written into the scripts uh but the, the way that Spock is manipulating the computers, because as we saw in Court Martial, he knows all about them. Um, well, know. and this is what I think. So again, this isn't real. This isn't how they were writing the shows. But I think Court Martial gave him the idea to do this. Okay. I think because he, and he saw how Finney messed up because the chess simulation wouldn't wouldn't work properly and i think spock went i can do all this and so, do it better so what you're saying is based on the experiences in court martial which was the episode that was produced right before the menagerie so finney manipulated the computer records of the enterprise to frame captain kirk into thinking that he killed finney but finney is does not know everything about computers spock and does. his big mess up was that finney's uh, manipulation of the computers affected other aspects of the Enterprise, including the chess game, which is why Spock was able to win four times. So Spock went, I could do better than this, and I could make sure that nothing else in the Enterprise will get affected when I manipulate the computers into taking Pike to Talos for. Well, and to, to be clear, what Spock does to manipulate the computers is Ten to a hundred times more complicated oh, yeah. than right, what Finney right, did. Finney right. just got a video to like look like he switched the thing <laughs> earlier than he did. He did some editing. That's, yeah, right, that's yeah. not he used iMovie. Yeah, exactly. You can literally do that in iMovie. Um, <laughs> and now uh, <laughs> Miss Piper is back. Miss yeah. Piper, can we talk yeah. about Miss Piper? Sure. Okay. So so now so here's a scene where. Uh, Miss Piper knows knows a lot about Kirk because she heard about it from Lieutenant Helen Yohovsky. So when I was growing up, uh, and I I didn't remember the last name of the character from Dagger of the Mind, but I remembered that her name was Helen. So when Piper says, A mutual friend described you, sir, Lieutenant Helen Johansson. I thought she was talking about Lieutenant Helen Noel, Uh, but it's not the same character. But But it would have been great if it was. But I actually think things went farther with Helen Johansky than they did with Helen Noel. That's true. Because it, it seems to me... The unspoken conversation here is you had sex with my friend, Helen. She said it was great. <laughs> I'm in. And, and that's, by the way, that's what I'm seeing. Helen, describe. She merely mentioned she knew you, sir. And she's still like smiling at him. Yeah. Being like, when the hell are you going to ask me out? <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the Mendez, Commodore Mendez says, you have something to report, Miss Piper? <laughs> and they're starting to look into Spock. Miss Piper. A Vulcan can no sooner be disloyal than he can exist without breathing. That goes for his present commander as well as his past. We can be certain Captain Pike could not have sent a message. In his condition, he's under observation every minute of every day. And totally unable to move, Jim. His wheelchair is constructed to respond to his brain waves. Through the flashing light, he can say yes or no. But that's it, Jim. Which I also go like, look, 
if he could blink yes or no, we could have three for maybe and four for, you know, we could do Morse code. Like, or can I go to the bathroom? You know, there's more, <laughs> there, there, there's more that he probably out. could do, but that's okay. That's the conceit of the show. His mind is as active as yours and mine, but it's trapped inside a useless vegetating body. And there's no way he could even have asked for that message to be sent. I love Spock in the control room with the speeding up and slowing down of the voice to get. It's just it's just cool espionage stuff. It is. It is. Starbase operations. Starbase operations. Starbase operations. Starbase operations. And he's sending a message off to the Enterprise. Starbase operations. Enterprise. Stand by to receive new orders. Enterprise. It's also kind of scary. I yeah. mean, that Spock, with his intelligence, what he can do when he really sets his mind on something is a little scary. And you see the exchanges between him and Kirk later on in the episode where Kirk feels like, hey, I've always been the captain, but this guy can go toe-to-toe with me if he wants to. It's um, unsettling. It absolutely is. Well, and it's, the thing that came up with Court Martial is mm. this is deep fakes. This is what we're dealing We're literally right at this technology today mm-hmm. where people are going to fake things. Um, and what we hear, and back up on the Enterprise, we hear that new orders are going to be fed directly to the ship's computers. They're top secret. They're scrambled. Enterprise to Starbase. Request confirmation. And back in the control room, a security guy shows up or a guy shows up and says, you're not supposed to be here. Yeah. It's uh, Chief Humboldt, who was the guy who was at the computers when Mendez called down to him. Ah. Sir, this is a security area. What are you doing here? I have security clearance, Chief. Who gave you clearance? I haven't been notified. So that's where, where Spock gets into the fight with him and uh, gives him, the you know, Humboldt is punching him in the face with both hands, left, right, left, right. And then uh, Spock just kind of flips him over, gives him the uh, FVNP, the famous Vulcan <laughs> neck pinch. And, and he does it effortlessly, by yeah. the way. So, so can I just say, I this actually is my favorite piece of fight choreography so far in the series. What? Because it is, I, and you know, John knows we talked about yeah. many times, I love fight choreography, I, you know, is that it represents Spock's character, which is the taking to, he's working on the computer and takes two punches without reaction mm-hmm. right. so he can continue to work on the computer and then does the smoothest way ahead of the guy, duck the, you know, the hook, come up behind and do the neck pinch. Mm. It's just, it totally shows who Mr. Spock is in the way that he fights. You know, the only thing is that between the time when this fight actually happens and the Enterprise starts to warp out of orbit. So has Humboldt been this unconscious is, the whole time? Like, mm, wouldn't he have woken up and said, Commodore, the alert, alert you know, uh, Spock is uh, messing up the computers and he's sabotaging the Enterprise. This is where I don't quite, this is where I go, like, there are things in this episode. I, I think... Part of it is the intention was, how do we get to play the cage? And so that I wish they had paid a little bit more attention to the, the envelope part of the episode, because there's some things in it where I go, they don't quite all fit together the way I think they should. I don't think they ever thought we'd be analyzing it in 2021. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> um, and then he sends up the message from Captain Kirk. Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> because he's got a recorded version of Kirk's. You have confirmation, Missouri. And we're back with Kirk and McCoy and Pike is on the monitor and he is blinking. No, no, no. He's almost agitated himself into a coma. Oh, wow. And this line, because Kirk asks, how long is he going to live? And the answer is, as long as any of us. Blast medicine anyway. We've learned to tie into every human organ in the body except one. The brain. The brain is what life is all about. Now, that man can think any thought that we can. And 
love, hope, dream as much as we can. But he can't reach out and no one can reach in. I always felt like there was always more conflict between Kirk and McCoy. People always say that the arguments were between Spock and McCoy. But the more heated arguments were between Kirk and McCoy. Like Kirk lost his cool with McCoy a few times. Yeah. Like, look at the anytime you can bluff me, doctor, moment mm-hmm. from the Cobra Mite maneuver. Uh, look at the uh, the argument in the cave over the uh, hill people and the villagers in right. uh, a private little war uh, when Kirk slammed his fist down. He's like, "All right, doctor." What this argument is about is that Kirk is starting to suspect Spock. Yeah. Either someone sent a message diverting us here, or someone on board the ship lied about receiving it. Could that someone be Mister Spock? And what's so interesting, because as you say, usually the conflict is between McCoy and Spock, and now McCoy is the one defending him. Jim, forgetting how well we both know Spock, the simple fact that he's a Vulcan means he's incapable of telling a lie. Not that I expected McCoy to turn on Spock, but he's defending Spock more behind Spock's back than he does to his face. Yes, exactly. Well, this is a family, isn't it? Yeah. So the Commodore comes for one of the family, and Kirk's like, don't you dare, no way, blah, blah, blah. But within the family, then the conversation comes, well, I think it was Spock. How can you think that? So McCoy becomes Kirk as Kirk is to Mendez in that situation. So Spock is completely getting defended throughout this line. because no, And that's why he's the perfect one to commit this betrayal because no one will think it. Oh, yeah, I also want to throw one more thing in here. The thing with Pike and showing him and the beeping and the condition he's in, as you said earlier, Steve, this is Vietnam. How yeah. many of these young kids are coming back? And they and as what Bones is talking about, in the mind, they can conceive of everything they can do, but their body won't let them do it. Oh wow. And sometimes it, even if they have mm. fully functional arms and legs and torso, they still can't do certain things because of the PTSD from the experience. Right? We saw that uh, old film from World World War Two, World War One, where the soldier comes back and it's it's all in his mind. Source Code is another version of this as well as a movie. So this idea, and I think they were kind of maybe just like subtly talking a, a little anti-war thing here. That's a it, really what good point. It's, f- it's funny you should mention that because I think the movie you're talking is movie you're talking about is what I have in my notes, which is Johnny got his gun. Johnny got his gun. Yeah, and Johnny got his gun is a book written by the great Dalton Trumbo yeah. about World War One, and the story is of an injured soldier who can't move can't hear can't speak can't do literally just trapped in his body can't communicate with the world at all talk about a depressing difficult yeah. story right. but i i i have no way of knowing but i bet they read it i bet it was yeah, oh yeah. you know it just makes sense to me that they know that yep. book or saw that movie um and here's the other thing i was thinking it's clear to me that spock is kirk's most important relationship yeah. except for one which is the enterprise because what he says and when he gets angry and when he is willing to speculate about whether or not Spock is lying, he says, someone's interfering with my command and my ship. I don't know who it is, but I mean to find out even you, if I thought you had the technical know-how I'd suspect you, but you don't Spock does. It's not that he's going to betray or try to harm any of his friends, but the enterprise is number one. Yeah. That's the limit. Yeah. And then as you, and then, McCoy gets called back to the Enterprise for some medical emergency, and they don't say what it is. Um, and now we're back with the Commodore, and we are looking at a book about a place called Talos Four. Yeah. 
it is the only the only starship to ever visit Talos for was the Enterprise, commanded by Captain Christopher Pike. And ever since then, it's been under General Order Number Four. No one is to visit Talos for uh, 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 under penalty of death. Yeah. Death penalty, like that. That just struck me as like a bit much mm. for the twenty third century. This supposed to be this aspirational near you i don't want to say utopian but close to it mm-hmm. and there's still a death penalty the only time you hear about a death penalty in star trek is when is if you go to talus four like what could be that bad that dangerous about this planet that going there would be under penalty of death i mean i wonder what pike wrote in his report <laughs> you know it must have been some report um i love by the way little sci-fi detail is the way they open the book there's yes. like a little slide it's just a, a little cool, a little lo- a lock it's yeah. a futuristic mm-hmm. lock a yeah. little futuristic lock and um, but what it doesn't say in this book about not visiting Taos Four is why. Mm. By the way, I like that Mendez says I'm giving you permission to read this top secret document. Piper's like right in the room when they're talking about it. We don't have a problem with her knowing all this information. She's not in the room because she's staring at Pike. She's yeah, in the room because she's staring at Kirk. It's true. <laughs> um, and right as we're finding out about the fact that the only ship to visit was the Enterprise, captained by Pike with a science officer named Mister Spock. Two things happen almost at the same time. Captain Pike is gone, and the Enterprise is warping out of orbit. Yeah. Camera zooms in on Kirk, who just looks pissed. Act two, we're back on the Enterprise, and we're heading out of orbit, and there is no navigator. The computer is in charge. Someone's trying to hail us, sir. Maintain radio silence, Lieutenant. And you could see the reactions around the bridge crew of, we trust Mr. Spock. He's acting very strange. But, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then he announces to the ship, just as Bones comes onto the bridge, that he has taken temporary command of the Enterprise, and Kirk has been assigned to medical rest leave. Okay, so Spock is being, he's telling the crew, not just someone else on the bridge, but he's, he's alerting the crew that Kirk has been assigned to medical rest leave. He is lying. I mean, he is lying, and well, the, Vulcans don't lie. Well, th- this whole thing about Vulcans not lying, clearly, I mean, maybe maybe full Vulcans don't lie, but Spock lies. <laughs> yeah, Spock lies, <laughs> What yeah. does it say in Rathacon? Uh, or in uh, Star Trek Six? Exaggerated, yeah. Yeah, but he lies throughout the original series. Mm-hmm. I mean, he lies all the time. Dresses up as Nazis and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gangsters. <laughs> gangsters, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, he lies all yeah, the Fisbin, time. Fisbin, remember, he says, uh, well, what are the odds of a royal Fisbin? He goes, I've never computed them, Captain. <laughs> What's going on around here? Who said Jim needed a medical rest leave? And this call about me being needed aboard the ship, I've checked everywhere. And no one from the ship made such a call. That's right. Uh, so Spock says, come with me. Bones follows reluctantly, and they go in through a door, and there is Pike. What is this, Spock? He's still trying to fool Bones because he says, yep. I'm sorry, some of the details I had to hold back from you. Now I'll be able to t- tell you the full truth. Yeah. Right. And he's he, playing another message from Kirk that's yeah. not really from Kirk. Um, and the smart thing about it, by the way, is that in that message is the name Bones. Mm-hmm. Is that he knows enough to use Kirk's colloquial nickname uh, to make it more convincing. Do you think McCoy is buying this? I, well, he's definitely suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Spock is definitely acting out of character. And he knows for a fact that Kirk was not assigned to medical rest leave. Yeah. But, like, what do you do? Like, I mean, he doesn't have any proof. He just suspects that something is definitely wrong. I think McCoy is suspecting that something is wrong. But but he can't 
he doesn't have enough information to go on to to make him question more even though the pike is right there when he should be on starbase 11 what i really wonder is what was this like seeing this for the first time you know because we've seen these over and over and over again and you know but this is the i think it's the 11th episode to air um and so that's what are you thinking at this point about this show well i'll tell you what i was thinking about it because again like i said i had seen the other episodes already many many times before i saw the menagerie right all right and I don't think I even read anything about it because the only books that I had on Star Trek at that time were the James Blish books, uh, maybe Star Trek The New Voyages and the photo novels. So I didn't and, – and The Making of Star Trek, which is just one of the very best books about the making of a TV series of all time. But to see Spock reacting this way or acting this way, not reacting, like it reminded me of how – scared i was of spock when i saw mirror mirror right especially when he gave in mirror mirror when he gave mccoy the mind melt like i was a little scared of this guy he's got the goatee and all that but in the menagerie which i knew that there was a pilot that was never used and it was part of the menagerie now i didn't even realize until later that that was not jeffrey hunter in Mm. the makeup i just thought it was the same actor sure so but again i was young i didn't know what I know now. Right. But I was like, I was disappointed. Mm. I was disappointed in Spock because I knew he was lying. I didn't know where this was going, but I thought, why is he lying to Captain Kirk? And what's going to happen next is really, really weird because we hear there's a shuttlecraft following. They, we hear there's no way that shuttlecraft can keep up. The shuttlecraft is hailing them and Spock will not respond. And again, the reactions around the bridge. This is not how we're supposed to do things. And we cut into the shuttlecraft. I don't think we're surprised at who's following them. <laughs> Commodore Mendez and Captain Kirk. And But what we hear, A, he is heading for Talos IV, which we know is the death penalty. And B, there's no way the shuttlecraft can keep up. And we are right at the moment where we're going to pass the point of no return. We are going to run out of fuel. Shuttlecraft to Enterprise, come in. Enterprise, come in. We already recorded our enterprise incidents on the Galileo seven. And do you realize that when they shot all the special effects Mm. for the model, using the model of the shuttlecraft, that was the only time they used that model. Whenever you saw the, the shuttlecraft in later episodes of the original series, it was shot. They they were reused from footage that they had filmed for the Galileo seven. Well, flash forward to 2006 and 2007 when the remastered versions of the original series with the new special effects were, were airing. And I love those. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the remastered versions of the, of the uh, original series with the new visual effects. In some cases, the newer visual effects actually make some of the episodes better like the Galileo seven and especially tomorrow was yesterday where they go back in time. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't have to worry about reusing footage and they were redoing some of the effects. So the, the producers of the, the remastered versions, uh, Dave Rossi and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda, instead of using the Galileo shuttlecraft again, they decided that they were going to make the shuttlecraft look like it came from Starbase 11. You even see the word Starbase mm. 11 on the shuttlecraft. And the name of the shuttlecraft is not the Galileo. The name of the shuttlecraft is the Picasso. Oh, <laughs> interesting. 
This is why I'm here. <laughs> How long before Shuttlecraft's fuel supply forces return to Starbase? Shuttlecraft is already past point of safe return. So now we see Spock risking Jim Kirk's life, essentially. This yeah. is where you start to go, man, what is the deal? Exactly. I remember so vividly because I remember how excited I was to watch The Menagerie because I was watching an episode of the original series that I'd never seen. Yeah. Because I had seen these episodes now so many times, just even back then because it was on five nights a week. Yeah. And I just remember being so excited to watch The Menagerie, an episode, uh, basically an original series episode, although it was the series, yeah. not the original series. And I was like, why is Spock doing this to Kirk? Why is Spock doing this to his friend? I was so disappointed that I was so, I was upset that Kirk was like, like he was risking not just his career now, but his life. Well, and this is why there, there are things in this where it feels to me they were done for drama not necessarily because it makes that much sense with the characters because like we're back in the shuttlecraft and they're like well we're out of fuel i guess we're just going to coast and in two hours we run out of oxygen and i'm like got a commodore and a starship captain and this they're just gonna sit here and die like it doesn't seem like this is a very smart plan and spock obviously knows that that's going to happen and he's going to wait till the last possible minute to you know it just seems like not entirely Mm. making sense to me but in hindsight, Spock has thought this through. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. This is this is basically Spock's version of the Corbomite maneuver. He is taking a big risk. It's not a bluff, but it certainly is a big risk. Mm. And it is a very, very well thought out risk. Step by step. I mean, he had to think about this every step of the way. You know what I also think it is? The other episode I think this really relates to is the conscience of the king. Because, oh, okay. because this is something that has come out of Spock's past where he is suddenly willing to act in ways he's never acted before, mm-hmm. just like Kirk, and he's going to put his career, his ship, everything on the line, even his relationship with Kirk, in order to do the right thing for something in the past. And Conscious of the King, it's, it's for to get the bad guy, and in this, it's to loyalty to the good guy. That is why you are here. <laughs> and by the way, so... I love that you tied this to the conscience of the king because I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I never thought about that before. But the motive and the sort of like, you know, holding his cards close to the vest like Kirk did in, in Conscience of the King, Spock is doing the exact same thing. He's holding the cards close to his vest. But also, what we ultimately see with Spock, the way he is sacrificing his career for to help his former captain, we see Kirk do the same for Spock in a mock time. Mm, yes, okay? exactly. We, oh, yes. we see Kirk risk everything, risk his career to get Spock to Vulcan for the Pond Far right. in a mock time. And we also, we also, going a step further, see Kirk risk his career for in a way that we don't even know how this is all going to play out in Star Trek Three: yes. The Search for Spock. Right. Well, and this is why I actually think this thinking of these as continuities, as as the evolution of characters and relationships is actually really interesting, you know, um, because obviously these things have built up over time. By the way, the moment I love in the shuttlecraft is when Kirk says, part of me is hoping that the Enterprise won't come back for us. We step on that deck. Spock is finished. Court martial disgraced. And he still cares about him. Still cares about him. Well, and I think, you know, because because. 
Because Kirk, one of the last things he says in this scene is Spock would have had some logical reason. He's trying to justify. He's trying to protect Spock. And shout out, is, did Roddenberry write this episode? Yes. Oh, yeah. He absolutely right? positively did, my friend. It's great character development. There's a magnanimous nature to Kirk here. Yeah. Another captain with an ego that overrides his, his uh, judgment as it would at this point, especially because of the Enterprise thing you spoke about earlier, Steve, would be like, if I can't, I better get on this bridge. I'm going to put this guy. There's, I'm so pissed off at this guy. Kirk is more like a little more of a larger picture thing going like there must be a reason. He wouldn't do this without some reason, which is why that pays, that moment pays off all the way at the end of the second part when he forgives Spock. I think that's such, yeah, it's such a good point. And I think, you know, we obviously, Kirk Mm -hmm. is the hero for all three of us. And we obviously talk about his intelligence, his strategy, his courage, his, his, you know, ability to come up with stuff, his charisma, all these things. I don't think we spend enough time talking about Kirk's compassion. Yes. Because like that, the end of Corbomite is that guy has been trying to kill me this whole time. Let's go save him. Right. At the end of Charlie X. Yes. This guy is, is killing my crew. He got rid of a whole other uh, starship, you know, uh, the Antares. And he's still trying to reason with the Thasians yes. to let Charlie stay. This might hurt some of you listening. He's a progressive captain. He is always thinking of why this is happening. What is the source of the reason why this is happening? And yes, people have died. People, have, But he's more exploring where is the pain? Where is the source of the issue? Where is the source of the reason for why you're doing this? And so for all his sleeping around, for all his <laughs> aggressive actions and tricks and maneuvers, Kirk is also an incredibly intelligent guy, which is why Spock is his equal, or Spock considers him his equal in terms of intelligence and loves him so much, uh, and the kinship is there. And it's smart, because Roddenberry, uh, Kirk is the audience. Kirk is us. That's true. Experiencing That's a good all point. this. That's yeah, a really so good point. So we've seen that, yeah. But also, also, you know, of course, at the end of Balance of Terror, he says, standing by to being your survivors aboard. Compassion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a fine line, and I think it's really important to define, which is, Kirk's going to get the job done. Yes. He's going to do what is necessary. He's going to get his ship back. Mm -hmm. But once that is done, he will be compassionate. Yes. I keep wondering who might be after us in a shuttlecraft. I keep coming up with the same answers. But I can't be right, can I, Mr. Spock? I I love the scenes on the bridge when McCoy is, like, always questioning Spock. Mm. Like, in Gamesters or Triskelion, when Spock is, like you know, following this like, you know, trail of something across the galaxy. Right. Because that's where where Kirk and, and Chekhov and Uhura were were taking the Triskelion. And he's like, you know, where the hell are you going? You know? <laughs> Same thing with like that which survives. He's like, what the hell are you doing? Like I see I love that because Spock is following his instincts, his skills, a hunch, his his compassion. And and you talk about compassion. If all else a God needs compassion, Mitchell um you talk about compassion, yeah. and in the end, jumping ahead, who has the most compassion of all in this episode? Uh, Mendez. Spock. And Spock, t- oh, okay, sure, Spock, yeah. Spock. Oh, because he uh, makes this all happen for Pike. Yes. He makes this all right. happen for Pike, right. and he also keeps Kirk out of it because he wants to keep Kirk from right. being the one to get court-martialed. It, my, I was a, uh, having my neck on the line was enough. We didn't need yep. to have your neck right, on the right, line as well. Jumping in. Yeah. Well, and now it's time for the Enterprise to stop and to lock onto the shuttlecraft with a tractor beam. Um, by the way, 
Who stops the enterprise? Computer stops the enterprise. Why? Because those were the orders that were fed into the computer by the computer. Remember? He all, all, remember? No, no, no. But, but why does it stop right now at this second? There's two. There's three possibilities okay. I see. Possibility one is that Spock has some way to tell the computer to stop the enterprise that we don't see. Possibility two is that Spock knew there would be a shuttlecraft chasing him. And not only did he know it would be chasing them, but knew exactly when that shuttlecraft mm. was going to run out of fuel to pre-program the Enterprise to stop at this moment. Poss- possibility number three. Okay. The Telosians are controlling the Enterprise. Ooh. Well, if where does where does Mendez, Mendez actually appear and not appear? I don't think he's ever been on that shuttlecraft never. at all. He never was. Oh, no, well, he, he never was. Uh, first of all, there are always possibilities. <laughs> That's true. Uh, second, my, you know, my, my uh, history with this episode, uh, seeing it over and over again, is that it's possibility number two that Spock knew exactly when the uh, shuttlecraft was going to come and knew exactly when to time it to stop the Enterprise. I did not even consider that the Telosians were controlling it because because the the, the Telosians were were controlling illusion. Yeah, but they were. But I don't believe. But they could make us flip any switch or do anything we want. That's the line in the cave. How right. far is their power reach? That's well, the this, question. Okay, so so this brings up another question. Yeah, and and this is one I've been thinking about, and I, I think we could speculate on it. I don't think we have any answer. When did Spock come up with this plan? And when did he contact the Telosians and how? So so mm-hmm. some months ago, this accident happened to Pike yeah. and Spock probably found out. Did the, it's A, possible that he found out, came up with this idea, somehow contacted the Telosians, put this whole crazy plan together mm-hmm. and now is executing it. It's also possible because we don't, the Telosians seem to be able to reach out their power pretty damn far because yeah, yeah. they're projecting on the, onto the enterprise when it's light years away. That's what we're going to see soon. Um, it's possible that they were, they've been monitoring Christopher Pike this whole time since the day he left Talos four and possible. that they knew that he had been in this horrible accident and they reached out to Spock. I think going back to your mm. revelation earlier in this discussion, I think he came up with the idea after he saw how close to manipulating the enterprise that Finney did in court martial. I think that's where he got the idea. And I think that it is, I think just, and this is all top of the head stuff here, uh, happening uh, uh, organically in this conversation. I think that seeing how Finney controlled the computers and thinking that Spock, I think he could do so much better. Spock knew what happened to Pike. Spock has always had compassion for Captain Pike Mm. and Spock always knew what happened on Talos four because Pike confided in him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that Spock and Pike, and I think, I hope, and I'm sure this is something that we are actually going to see mm. in strange new worlds, but I think that there is a relationship between Cap and Pike and Spock, which is much like the relationship between Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. It's going to be a little different because Spock, uh, you know, because Kirk and Pike are very different people. Yeah. However, I will say this about Pike in Discovery and the Pike in the cage. The Pike that we see in the cage is very stiff. Yes. And he says things, he, he, he addresses his second in command as number one. 
and we hear him use the words engage twice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, right. I felt for many years that the pike that we see in the cage is more like Picard. Oh, interesting. In the next generation. Interesting. In the beginning of the next generation. Right. I think more like, contemplative. There there's more like like yeah. the cage has more in common with the next generation than it does with the original series. I'll also say this. <laughs> I'll say this that the Kirk that we see in the third Kelvin timeline version Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. The Kirk that we see in that film, the one who is uh just burned out of command. It doesn't you know, it's not his jam anymore. He's tired of it. That's the pike that we see in the cage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was the pike that we saw in Star Trek Discovery who had that swagger that made him more like Kirk in the original series. Yeah, yeah. Good point. So it's very, very interesting how, how mm-hmm. uh, you know, just out of necessity to for Star Trek to evolve – how they are making Pike look more like Kirk in the original series. Mm. What, what's always interesting is there's a um, an alchemy between the writer and the actor. Jeffrey Hunter played it a certain way. Yeah. And Shatner comes in and is Shatner. Right. And <laughs> as soon as you see how he's playing it, you write to that. Yeah. You know, and the swagger is just there. I, I, mean, I mean, even Nimoy has said in interviews over the years, he said, you know, Jeffrey Hunter was a you know, was a great actor, but he he was very stiff and yeah. he didn't emote too much. And, and as a result, while they were filming the cage, Nimoy didn't have enough to react against, to react from. Mm-hmm. And then William Shatner walks onto the set and where no man has gone before, and he's he's he Nimoy described him as this ball of energy, and he brought so much to the table as Kirk, and he went, ah, I can react to that. Right. And that is why, when we were talking about Galileo 7, how Nimoy perceived his performance of Spock in that episode as a failure because he didn't have Kirk to bounce to react to. I, yeah. I, I, think that's, I think that's a great point, and I also think it shows why this scene on the bridge that we're in right now is so well-written for Mr. Spock. Because as soon as we get to the point where we're stopping to get the shuttlecraft, he immediately calls down to the transporter room to beam Captain Kirk aboard, and he immediately calls for a security to come to the bridge. So this is the fourth possibility that I have. Mm, Yes. He knew as soon as they crossed the point of no return line that he was going to hand over control of the ship. I think he knew immediately there was no going back. Right. So as soon as he crossed that line, he would stop the ship, immediately hand it over. Now the shuttle being a part of it, maybe he factored that in, maybe he didn't. But either way, I think he knew as soon as they crossed that line, which is why I asked about it, that he was going to stop the right. ship, surrender control back to McCoy or whoever was there, and, uh, and uh, hand himself over to security. So he planned at least that far out. The shuttle, I think that's almost impossible to figure out if he was going to grab the shuttle, where it was going to stop, how far yeah. it was going to go. Like, who knows what could have gotten involved. I think you're right. I, it, maybe, maybe. 
Well, because, because I know I think you're well, I think it's a very, very good idea because we cut away. We don't know what Spock does after he hears they cross the path of no return. Right. Before he stops the Enterprise, he could easily have gone to a computer and go bloop, 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 bloop. Right. And programmed in when we're going to stop. <laughs> well, and remember in the court in the uh, court martial back and forth when they get in there uh, in a little bit, he, uh, uh, Mendez says, "Will you release control of the ship?" So clearly, Spock has some kind of hold on the right. ship in some way. So. Um, and then he turns to McCoy and yeah. says, <laughs> "Doctor, as senior officer present, I present myself to you for arrest. What? The charge is mutiny, Doctor." <laughs> Look. On McCoy's face, DeForest Kelly is like, just this, this triple take, like, what, WTF? Yeah. <laughs> I also think, by the way, Michelle Nichols is so good. Oh, yeah. And, she, and you, her reaction, she doesn't get to do that much all the time, but watch her reaction to this moment. She is 100% in the scene. You could tell a good actor from what they're doing when they're not in the yes. scene, but on camera. Yes. If they're overacting the moment... Or if they're underacting the moment, it comes through. If they're in the spirit of the scene, it makes you appreciate their work even more. Well, and as an editor, having that person who's in it is the best because this is slightly technical, but I'll say it very quickly. Let's say, John, I'm I'm directing you and you have um, a a fairly long paragraph you got to say. And on the first take, you do the second half of the paragraph. You nail it, but the first half was a little shaky. And on the second take, you nail the first half, but the second half is a little shaky. Well, what I want to do as an editor is combine the two. Right. Well, what do I need to do in order to do that? I have to cut away to yes. somebody else. Good point. So if I have another actor in the room who is solid and listening and perfect, I can make your performance better yep. because I can cut away to Ahura. Accentuate, yeah, absolutely. That that is so. That's why editors love. And by the way, you are an actor who I can cut away to because I've seen what you do. Um, Fair point. Um, and then I just love security shows up, and after a pause, McCoy says, "Mr. Spock is uh, under arrest." And then looks at Spock. Is confinement quarters enough? He asks Spock's yeah. opinion about how to arrest him. Adequate, doctor. I'll make no trouble. Yeah, this yeah. is probably the first time McCoy's ever had to do this. Oh, yeah. So he's, he's like, let me ask somebody who I'm about to arrest. <laughs> yeah, what I should do, do here. <laughs> now, McCoy is a lieutenant commander, right? That's correct. So he's much higher ranking than Hanson. Oh, sure. Um, but there's nobody's considering putting McCoy in charge. <laughs> uh, as a chief medical officer, I mean, I mean, he's a lieutenant commander. I mean, he outranks Hanson. Right. But... Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, and the other person is we're going to see that Scotty's actually here because he beams the captain aboard. He doesn't get put in charge either. No, no, no. Um, uh, but Kirk shows up, takes back command, finds out that Spock is in his quarters under arrest. Mendez is like, in his quarters? The guy stole a starship. Um, um, and Kirk, I, the way they set this up is really great too, is Kirk wants to take control of the Enterprise again and the ship is starting up without him yeah and he's uh, trying to get the computer to disengage and as he's doing this we see spock watching him yeah. from his quarters apparently that was enough and, and, and the way the way that that spock is watching the monitor and the computer you know major power roddenberry's uh, voice there is saying unable to comply you know vessel's going to go to talus four right. uh, and spock shuts off the monitor and he like puts his head down like almost in shame that he's put his potentially his closest friend to in in this position, but but who's who's the closer friend here? He's doing this for Pike. 
I mean, not that he should have to choose. The fact that he has thought this through in such a logical way that he can be loyal and protect both captains, Pike and Kirk, to help his former captain and to spare his current captain, uh, that is why Spock is Spock. <laughs> but I also think in that moment, it's you can plan anything you want. It's when it actually starts to go in motion and you see the reactions of the human beings or the people involved, regardless of species, you actually see the effect of your decisions. And so that comes through. And certainly there is an empathy to, to well, Spock that feels that. This is also where, and this I'm going to say the, if I were making this show, this is what I would have done or what I wish I'd saw, which is always a, not always a fair criticism. Right. This moment of Spock watching Kirk and Kirk trying to take control and to defeat Spock's plan, I went, man, Spock versus Kirk. That's right. And, and, and at the very end, what we hear the Telosians say at the end of part two, just skipping way ahead, they say, we thought the court martial would distract you so you didn't work so hard to try to take control of the Enterprise. Right. And I went... Man, I wish I saw the episode where Kirk was trying to take control of the Enterprise yeah. and going toe to toe with Mr. Spock and seeing them play three dimensional chess slash poker against each other. Yeah. That would have been so much more exciting. And there's so much going on in the trial and and in the flashbacks to the cage where I'm like, we could have moved this along. Like it's <laughs> it seems pretty thin, and we could have gotten and I, so it's just like the episode. I wish. They could have gotten into. But I think this is where Kirk serves as the guide. And I, I should misspeak. I think I misspoke earlier. He's not the audience necessarily. He is sometimes. But because I think Bones is really much more the audience. What the hell is going on? But I think it's, <laughs> it's more Kirk is the guide for what you're supposed to feel and in the episode and where you're supposed to be in the episode. And I think he does that here as well. And you're right, Steve. It would be great to see them go toe to toe. And they have come close a couple uh, throughout the season yeah. and the movies. They've come close, certainly in uh, six when he's like, you vouched for me. Like there's that kind of battle yeah. Oh, yeah. that is always oh, there yeah. between them. Right. So you love to see that. And I wonder how much the Talosians like had to have uh, uh, Mendez act the way he does to uh, keep the illusion going for Kirk, right? It can it comes so close to falling apart, and Mendez is the reason why he's the constant voice of like, "Stop! This should stop! You're 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 violating laws!" Blah blah blah. So it's it's an incredible illusion, and Kirk is very magnanimous not to be pissed off yeah. that he got manipulated like this. Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's Act Three, and we start with a preliminary hearing. And okay, this hearing. Yes. Doesn't this kind of feel familiar? Absolutely. Of course it does. <laughs> it's just like court martial. It's just like court martial. But the other thing that's going to make it feel familiar is maybe the uh, the pacing and the look of this of this episode because it is directed by Mark Daniels and court martial was directed by Mark Daniels. <laughs> Normally the directors of the Star Trek episodes don't go back to back and for a period of time from the mid of the uh, middle of the uh, first season to the uh, middle of the second season, they were going back and forth between Joe Peevney, Mark Daniels, and then Ralph Sinetsky will come in for a few. But because Mark Daniels directed two back-to-back -back episodes before with The Man Trap and with uh, The Naked Time, Bob Justman and the producers felt like Mark Daniels was the perfect person to shoot Court Martial and both parts you know, again, this is really just basically one episode that they're doing with the, with the Avila portion of the menagerie, also with Mark Daniels. So when mm. 
when uh, when they were fit, finished filming Court Martial, Mark Daniels didn't have any time to actually prep for the menagerie. Like all the other episodes, he hmm. was able to to do prep for, except maybe the Naked Time, because it came after the Man Trap. But Mark Daniels went right in from Court Martial right into the envelope portion of the menagerie, and he crushed it, and he came in under budget under schedule and everyone in the Desilu office was singing his praises. And that is why Mark Daniels actually ties with Joseph Evney as having directed the most episodes of the Mm. original series, 14 episodes. Wow. Scott, I have a question for you. Yes. Which is, so I know that for instance, while they shot Corbomite first, that they didn't air first because it was expensive to finish time consuming to do all special effects. Do you know why they, they put, uh, the menagerie before court martial. Do you know what the reasoning was? Absolutely. It was all because of budget. It was all because of visual effects. That is why like Corbomite Maneuver was the was the first proper series episode right. to be filmed. Basically, the Corbomite Maneuver is the third pilot. Right. Like mm. if you think about it, you mm. have the cage, yeah, which yeah, didn't yeah. sell the series. Yeah, where no man has gone before, which did sell the series, but wasn't the first to air. Right. Then you have the Corbomite maneuver, which was the first proper series episode to be filmed. And as we discussed, it is the mission statement of Star Trek, mm. the mission of the Enterprise to seek out and contact alien life. But because of certain episodes that were filmed earlier, like the Corbomite maneuver and Steve also Balance of Terror. The visual and and Galileo 7, the visual effects work required for those episodes was so great that they had to air later. How much visual effects stuff did they have for for the menagerie? Well, and they had half the episode filmed already. It was easier to move the menagerie earlier in terms of having it air as number 11 instead of number 16, which is when it was filmed. (laughs) Well, and... It means that they probably never thought that the court martial and menagerie were going to play back to back. They they did intend for it to be filmed back to back, right? Because it was Bob Justman who said, "Let's take advantage of these of the dress uniforms and, right. the, and the setting of, of the uh, uh, of the the hearings and all that." And actually, you know, when when the menagerie was first being written as an envelope, and Roddenberry was rewriting all these other scripts, he actually gave the script assignment for the envelope portion of the menagerie to his then story editor, John D.F. Black, who uh-huh. wrote who wrote uh, The Naked Time. So when John D.F. Black started writing the envelope, he did not call it the menagerie. He called it from the first day to the last. Hmm. So when Roddenberry came in and he did his own draft teleplay, he changed it to the menagerie, which, like I said, was the original title of the cage. And... Gene Kuhn, who was now the day-to-day producer of Star Trek, uh, he did his final draft teleplay on October 10th of 1966. And the thing is, Gene Kuhn was such a massive, massive influence on Star Trek that the menagerie is is the end of phase one of mm. Star Trek. Oh, interesting. It is the end of, of the formative. Yeah part of the series because after the menagerie you had episodes like arena this side of paradise sitting on the edge forever space seed right. errand of mercy the devil in the dark 
Boom, 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 boom. Great episode after great episode with fully realized characters in the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And also the signature sort of joke at the end of the episode on the bridge. (laughs) That's all Gene Kuhn, the formation of Starfleet, Starfleet Command, the creation of the Klingons, the creation of Khan. That is all Gene Kuhn. The creation of the Organians. Like, like, Like what Gene Kuhn did after he really came on and, you know, Miri was the first episode that he actually worked on. But after the menagerie, like with Shore Leave, the very next like proper episode, like Shore Leave is a like there's no it's other a totally episode. different thing. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. That is Gene Kuhn. Well, sometimes you know, making twenty how many how many was in the season? Twenty seven? Uh, in the in the first uh, yeah. uh, 29. 29. 29 episodes is really hard and sometimes you need to take a breath. And I also <laughs> think that the menagerie is a little bit of breathing room because we got more big episodes coming. Yeah. And but what's coming right now is that Spock is demanded a court martial and Mendez says you can't have it. You need three command officers. And Spock says, We have three. And the third, of course, is Captain Christopher Pike. Denied. Captain Pike is a complete invalid. I believe you'll find he's still on the active duty list. I like Kirk's surprise, and I love M- Mendez saying, yeah, we didn't have the heart to retire him. Yeah, yeah. It's such a great moment, because that's how much love people have for Pike. Well, and that Spock has planned this whole damn thing yep. out. Yep. And I really think, because I think about Spock losing to Kirk at 3D Chess, oh, I yeah. think about his failures at the Galileo 7, and I think about he's learned all this stuff, and now... He is really, mm-hmm. he's come of age in a way and is taking on Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the thing is when they when they start to, you know, show the visual and you see them bring the lights down. This is 13 years ago. And you see the Enterprise and then you see the flyover and it come into the bridge. And its commander, Captain Christopher Pike. The first time you saw the Menagerie, what was it like the first time you saw Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike? I really think that this is where I started to understand that this was a show. I I know Mm. that's a weird, like, because when I saw Jeffrey Hunter as Pike, I saw this other doctor, I saw the ship look Mm. different. I saw nurse chapel in a different role. And I, and at this point I noticed those things and saw Spock smile. And I went, it's suddenly, instead of being, like I, you know, John, I don't know if you've had this experience and I don't mm. know if you ever thought about create, you know, being a filmmaker or being any of those things, but I remember the, oh, people make these things. I could be a person who makes these things. That's actually what oh, I just started to think about. And I think the menagerie is a part of where I was thinking about how did this happen? Right. You know, which has obviously been me my whole life since then, you yeah. know, for me, it was you son of a bitch. Take that yellow shirt off. You're not, you're not the captain. <laughs> Kirk is my captain. I remember because I didn't know I'm a kid. Right. I didn't know this was the pilot, right? I thought they shot all of this for the menagerie. It wasn't until later, obviously, I realized it was the pilot, whatever. But at the time, as a kid, I'm like, oh, no, he's the wrong captain for this. It's Kirk, and this is why. And so, But fascinating that this is in the past of Spock. And right, seeing him smile was jarring, Steve. It was jarring. I'm like, that's not Spock. It was also jarring. And I remember, and I think that's one of the reasons why this stays as one of my favorites, because it was a waking up process right. to like, oh, wow, there was the potential of another crew on this enterprise. So See, it was kind of crazy. That, John, yeah. is what got to me. Huh. So, so when I was watching this for the first time, you know, the excitement of watching 
uh, an episode that I'd never seen before. Mm. Just just with the characters that we love, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. But then when they sat in the in the in the for the hearing and they started showing the cage, seeing Jeffrey Hunter as Pike in the captain's chair and Spock saying, "Definitely something out there, Captain, headed this way." That's when it hit me that there is a history to the mm. 23rd century. Mm. Spock has a history. The Enterprise has a history. Kirk was not the first captain right, in command. Right. That there was a commander before Kirk, and, and as we later found out, there was a commander before Pike, Robert right. April, who we found out well, that's right. in the Countercock Incident episode right. of the animated series, <laughs> right. um, which is canon, because that's also where you found out that Tiberius was Kirk's middle name. But to see something that clearly was part of this universe, but something that was different, but something that was still fully realized, like the bridge looked like the bridge. Yeah. The uniforms looked different, but they were still Starfleet uniforms. The sound effects were a little different, but it was still sounded like Star Trek. And the Captain Pike, Jeffrey Hunter, to me, he looked a little bit like Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had this just this classic good look, you know. Uh, I mean, he looked a little like Elvis, not a lot like Elvis, but he resembled Elvis. Um, but he was definitely, I remember, uh, especially in the scenes that followed, you know, I didn't like that he didn't, he didn't like being the captain. Like, yeah, Kirk he questioned being it. the captain. Yeah, he was like, I want to be back with my horses, by right. the way, which they kind of took for Kirk as well, the idea of the horses sure. and his affection. I want to be out on the farm. And, and the doc is like, really? You, you, yeah, okay, riding out there for picnics. And he's like, I'm not saying I want to do that every day. I'm just saying that's one of the things I could be doing rather than being stuck on this ship. But him questioning himself being a captain, you made a great point about Picard. Picard has that. He is constantly questioning whether he's the right person to be in charge, even while he's in charge, when the show took off, when Next Generation really took off. And even though Kirk has his doubts, like in Battles oh, yeah. of Terror, he goes, why sure. me? Even though Kirk, you know, in certain certain parts, mm -hmm. you see the loneliness. Mm -hmm. You see the burden of command, like in Naked Time, when he's like, you know, no beach to walk on. But... He loves being the captain. He, he is. loves the Enterprise. Spock says it best, right? Your first and best thing destiny. is to be destiny yeah. to be captain of this Enterprise. Yep. It's yep. totally true. That's he, him and the ship are one. Yep. As you spoke about earlier, Steve. Manning that's why a starship is your first best destiny. <laughs> yeah, first best. Exactly. And that's the thing. And he's he you said the, there's no greater relationship than him and the Enterprise above everything else. They are symbiotic in that way, you know. So um so Anyone who's been listening to Enterprise Incidents knows that Scott and I have already talked a lot about what happens <laughs> in the cage, so we might not move through it with quite the detail, but yeah. we haven't heard what John has to say oh. about, you know, Captain Christopher Pike and what goes on, yeah. um, and and of course, they're watching it in the trial, yeah. and they're asked. Pike, is this really what happened? Because no one, no tapes like this have ever been made of a ship. Nothing yeah. is detailed. And he yeah. says, yeah, this is what happened. This is where the show becomes a trapped a little bit in, in the technology of the time, right? right? This idea that you could broadcast these images, like it's not that really well known. And you're like, wait, but this is the future. Do you think you'd be able to do it? But apparently there are no tapes like this on the Enterprise when Nixon is four years away, I think, at oh, this point, right? This is taping things. So it's like, oh, this isn't done, right? You don't oh tape Oh, my God, things. what a good point, That's right? a great point. So it's like, oh, my God. What the devil are you putting in there, Ice? Who wants a warm martini? 
and remember, Bones brings over the Romulan ale in Star Trek too. So the idea of the Doctor bringing over, in essence, sarsaparilla to kind of oh, calm you down, yeah. you, you know, it's 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 there's images, oh, there's uh, echoes in it in in Khan. But this Doctor is a different Doctor. I like uh, uh, DeForest Kelly better, but I also appreciate that this doctor knows how to talk to his captain. John yeah. Hoyt, who John played Hoyt, Dr. Yeah. Boyce. Yes, how to, uh, how to put the walls down on his captain, how to actually talk to his captain. It occurred, and he's a smart doctor. It occurs to me you'll talk to your bartender better than you will your physician. And so he gets him to put his walls down, and you see this vulnerability. And listen, the reason Hunter doesn't, Hunter, Hunter's like Eric Bana, Josh Lucas, these great, good-looking Jason Clark. They get all the opportunities in the world, but the audience doesn't really go with them and puts butts in seats in the ways that like Tom Cruise does or these other superstars. But he's got all the tools. There's just something always missing with Jeffrey Hunter, even in The Searchers, which is a great movie. And I, I love, love the that. Searchers for sure. But there's always there's this distance between the audience and Hunter. That's it. That's, and that's the thing. The, and that you can you can't connect him like you connect to Shatner. You know, there's another thing I want to ask you about mm. with with Jeffrey Hunter as as Pike. So when they're on the bridge of the Enterprise and they're getting a distress signal yeah. from, from the SS Columbia, from Talos 4, what would Kirk have done? And what did Pike do? Pike says, we're not going to go without any indication of survivors. Right. Would Kirk have done that? Because they just, as we've, as we've heard about, yeah. in the, as we will hear about rather in Pike's quarters, they just got out of a big fight on Rigel 7 that, right. left, that left some uh, couple crew members dead and others others injured right. and we see those injuries buddy um <laughs> i want to ask you about that too um but i just thought it was interesting uh, uh from a mm. command perspective the choice that pike makes we're going to head to the vega colony take care of our own sick and injured yeah before we we take the chance that there actually might be survivors mm-hmm. on talus for you think kirk would have done that uh no I think Kirk would have gone in and yeah. then fig- and then troubleshot the situation as it goes along. But I will say this. I think this experience on Talos 4 is why Pike goes in to save those young people from the Delta race. Mm. The fact that he is aloof, the fact that he's the fact that he's questioning all of this and his hesitation, all of that, that is who he was, right? But I think he changes from this experience. This was his moment of crisis about Crisis of confidence about being the captain. And is this experience where he really kind of, he has to go through this. People forget about this in the cage. It is also his journey yeah. throughout this thing. He is given every opportunity, exactly what he's complaining about. I could have the Oasis. I could be with my horses. I could be with this woman who's beautiful. I fell in love with her the minute I saw her. Like there's all of that here for, and he turns it down because he is a captain. And I think he changes from this moment forward. That's my thinking on it. I think that's a really great point. I really, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're, it's actually, it's so obvious because that's classic character art. He says, I don't want this. I want, I think I might want that. He gets offered that and he rejects it and goes back to being the captain. And that is why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. If after witnessing this, the court wishes to turn this vessel back, I will release this ship to manual control. Which, by the way, is, you know, pretty messed up. He's he's literally continuing to commit the crime which he is currently being tried for. He's almost <laughs> smirking while he does it, which is really frustrating. And, and and Kirk wants to keep seeing it. And Mendez says no and says we're deadlocked. Right. No, not deadlocked because there's the third person on the board and they ask Pike if they should continue. 
Pike says yes. This is the turning point for Pike. Mm -hmm. Because up to this point, he's been blinking twice this whole time. No, don't take me on the Enterprise. And McCoy walks in. It's blinking no, blinking no. So now it's they're, they're past the point of no return. So Pike knows that the only way for Kirk to save his career is for it is to see Spock follow through with his yeah, plan. Great point. Great point. Now this is the point where everything that Spock has planned that Pike was initially against, now Pike is leaning into it as best he could because, you know, he can't really do too much leaning <laughs> because he knows that there's no margin for error. Failure is not an option. Like this has to work. Pike knows that he has to to play his part in this mm. to make that happen. You know what occurs to me? I think I was thinking about Captain Pike wrong. Mm. I because here we have a character literally he's an emptiness. He's a, he's a he's a face. He's and so anything that we feel about his emotions is what we've manufactured. And I think you guys set me straight about what the no meant at the beginning. Mm. That the no meant I don't want you to risk your career. And that's what was upsetting Pike. Let me tell you what I always thought. I always thought he was scared. Mm. I always thought because yes, this that. is a this is an environment where he could be given all his fantasies. Right. This is also an environment where he was a captive and was tortured. Right. Right. You know, and that I so when he's saying no, 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 and he said he's so he's almost putting himself into a coma. He's mm. so frenzied. I thought he was horrified, mm. and that slowly in the course of this, the the progression was. Oh, maybe this is going to be okay. Maybe, maybe by re-seeing this and rethinking about this, I they they will take good care of me. But I actually think that that maybe I was wrong, or maybe there's a combo in there. I'm not yeah, sure. I think it's a, but like I think his desire to protect Spock, which I hadn't been thinking about, mm -hmm. is really really important. Oh yeah. Um, it's Act Four, and we have another review of what's going on. And this is where I think this is a lot of there's a lot of padding. Mm -hmm. You know, where it's like, look, I. I it, I just saw it. I know what was happening, <laughs> but there's a lot of, you know, things in the log. And then uh, we we are back with the old Enterprise and talking about beaming down. There's a whole bunch of small things they cut out, most of which we don't need to go into. One of which is that I think is interesting is the sexism moment and the, the connection between number one and Captain Pike mm. and that she might be attracted to him. That is cut out pretty much of the menagerie. Well, well also... Uh there, there is some sexism. Yeah, going why is there on. women? I, well, who assigned me a female yeoman? And right, yeah. right, right. Ooh, well, yeah. well, that you know, look the the other thing that we did point out, and this is this is important to talk about because maybe it wasn't successful mm. in his quarters. Pike is referencing this battle that happened on Rigel Seven, and now we're back on the bridge of the Enterprise, where they're in orbit around Talos Four, and he looks at Spock, and he looks at. His, na his na uh, navigator, uh, Lieutenant Jose Tyler. You never actually hear his name, mm -hmm. but that's his name, the, uh, the blonde-haired guy. Yeah, maybe he wanted the chili peppers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he did. <laughs> maybe he was now a captain of some other ship. It's 13 years the later. The point is, <laughs> whoever that Kirk referenced as getting the chili peppers in the man trap is one of these two guys in the menagerie. Yes. Who, who, which Jose do you think it is? <laughs> Head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know. Um, but my question pull. for you, John, is this. Did you know, watching the menagerie the first time or the first few times, that Spock was injured and that the navigator was injured and that one of the other crew members had beamed down. 
Did you get no. the sense at all that they were injured from a previous mission? That no. there was some history to the cage? Not at all. Not at Not all. Not at all. Like they land and they immediately go, like they're transfixed by the blue leaves right. and all but, of that. But, but what yeah. about when, they're, when they first beam down? Yeah. You could see the navigator on his hand, there's a bandage. There's a bandage around oh, his hand. Wow. Uh, one of the other guys, the guy carrying the backpack, okay. uh, he's got a white bandage on the back of his neck. Wow. And when they see the blue leaves, because the blue leaves are emanating the planet vibrations, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I always love that sound, the planet sounds yeah. that Alice and their courage did. Um, <laughs> when Pike walks over to the blue leaves, Spock is walking behind him yeah. and he's limping. Oh, I always thought that, I guess I never noticed that. I always thought that was rocky terrain, so he's working around him. He's and limping. the tight quarters of the shot. So, so, that's so, what I think. so Scott informed me of this yeah. as well, that this is actually referencing the battle on Rigel 7. Oh. I never noticed it either. Yeah. And, and I think this is a perfect sign of bad filmmaking. See, if they I wanted us to, <laughs> But did you get it the first time? Well, I mean, the first time I was a kid, there was a yeah. lot of shit that I didn't get. Well, yeah. A lot of stuff I didn't get back But then. also, the other part of this is, I've been trained by Star Trek not to pay attention to everybody else other than the leads, because they could <laughs> die at any moment. <laughs> it's the red shirt situation. Point. You know, yeah, right. So I didn't think to notice it. But even this time around, I didn't notice notice it and thought it was just rocky terrain you know you know what's a shame though about watching the menagerie before you saw the cage and about not being able to see the cage as a, as the actual first pilot mm. is that you never got the sense of awe and wonder in seeing the build-up to the transporter effect mm. because when right. people watch star trek for the first time if they were watching it from day one the first image they saw was of uh, Kirk and McCoy and crewman Darnell beaming down at the beginning of the man trap. Right. And it just kind of happens and they beam down and that's it. There's no fanfare to that's it. That's a great point. But in the cage or in the menagerie. It's a big deal. It's, it's a very big deal. They're in the yeah. transporter room. They're getting their equipment put on. They're wearing the jackets over their uniforms, which is something that they did not do in the origin mm -hmm. in the series when it went into series. And they get up and they, they get onto this platform. What's what's what are they doing? What's what's happening here? And then the the build up of the sound effect, then he pushes the buttons on the, the transporter console, the, the sound builds up and it gets louder, it gets louder, and then the lighting when they dis, when they disappear mm -hmm. and then they're gone, and then they cut to Talus four and they reappear, that sound, and they materialize. Looking around this alien world with this gorgeous matte painting, nobody, unless they're watching The Cage for the first time mm. and have never seen any Star Trek at all, no one ever had that sense of discovery like that was intended to have. And what they probably would have thought about had they experienced that was, no. oh, that looks like the scene in Forbidden Planet mm. when they stepped onto those platforms when they went into hyperspace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because obviously Star Trek right. was very, very, very inspired by Forbidden Planet. Yeah. I, that's a great point. It's come up so much many times on the cinephiles is entrances and exits. The first time oh, you yeah. see a thing and and they used the wimpiest version as the first time we see the transporters as mm. opposed to this one. It's a great one. Here's my question for you mm. um, is that we get down there and we see the camp. 
with the survivors. Yeah. What do you think of Vina when we meet her? Oh, it's perfectly set up, right? This and it's it's a now in 2021 it's a little creepy, the all these old dudes and there's this one. But then he says it's it's her his daughter, I think he says. Um she and born when they crash. She was right, exactly. So you're like, okay, I feel bad for her more than anything else that these are the only people she's had contact with, but they seem intelligent. They seem smart. So And how does yeah, she seem to you? Absolutely beautiful and gorgeous and exactly what they were intending her to be not how she looks how does she act oh <laughs> interesting <laughs> okay um because i'll tell you, for me yeah she is creepy really but, yeah when she comes up and goes oh, no. he is a perfect choice oh in that way yeah right i can see that by the way steve she's also uh seeing the very first in the flesh person she has seen in 20 years that's true i also think she's in command of herself mm, so mm-hmm. when she walks up there's not a shyness or any kind of thing she walks up very boldly and makes her statement so i think it's a commanding presence and very sexy and she brings him up to that rock to show him something special and then she disappears yeah and then out come the Telosians with their big heads and they they knock captain pike out and drag him away aside from the klingons this is the only other species that I will always have. That will always be in my mind. I'll Stand forget. Out. I'll, I'll forget Romulans. I'll forget every other species, the Klingons and these dudes forever. Because the oversized brain thing. I have a thing where I can't watch um, even in a, uh, a a simulated show or a, a fictional show them cutting people open and autopsies. Like I was watching Bosch last night. And they have an autopsy. I almost threw up. I can't do it. <laughs> Sight of blood? Yes, yeah, so do it for you. show me an oversized cranium, and I'm losing my <laughs> mind. Okay. And the veins popping when they speak, it just drove me insane forever. It just messes me up. It messes me up. Just this, because literally their brains are so oversized, right? And so it, to me, kind of un- unsettled me on so many levels, but it is jarring. And it stays with you, especially as a kid. So even over the Romulans. Oh, yeah. Because the, the Romulans to me are like... Stuck. Well, what I'll say about... They're like fake Klingons. What, I, what oh, I'll yeah. say about, about the Talosians, the Klingons and the Romulans, the makeup that, that's done on them is not nearly as involved as the makeup that's done but, on the Talosians. Yeah, it's so incredible. And, and even when you have aliens like, uh, you know, the Energy Force and the Day of the Dove... Uh, so that's that's a special effect. Mm-hmm. When you have the Mugatu or the Gorn, it looks like so much makeup in a costume that it doesn't mm-hmm. even look real. Right. But with the Telosians, it was just, and this is a public, you know, coming from the pilot on the cage, you know, the the makeup uh, that Fred Phillips did, that it it's the perfect balance yeah. because it it it's humanoid, but it still looks very 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 alien. I mean, the the Romulans look just like the Vulcans. Yeah, so. the Romulans are basically your they're Vulcans. They're cosplaying as yeah. Vulcans. That's what they are. <laughs> and so that's what I look at it as. But with the Telosians, it's the silver robes. Yeah. It's the way well, they don't have to speak with their mouths. It's scary. Well, yeah. here's the thing I think is because I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when we did the cage, I said this is among my favorite alien oh, design. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, is that what I think about it? Is that it also fits their character? It fits their yep. story. Yep. Is that it's not just that it looks cool. It's that you say, oh, here are these people that develop their mental powers, hence the big brains, and that they then retreated from actual real living life. Yeah. And they've been living underground, hence the completely uniform clothing. Right. That they no longer have genuine human experiences, hence the um, thinking, you know, using, telepa- yeah, yeah. using telepathy and having these sort of androgynous, because it's also that, oh, yeah. that we don't, that some of them are, it's women that are cast and they're 
they're use voices that don't match the bodies and all of that. All of that is supporting the ideas of what the species is. Yeah. And it makes sense that Spock will gravitate to them because Spock is an intellectual individual. Oh. So the, they're, if they're mentally geniuses, Spock would naturally feel a kinship with them. Spock here. Landing party, come in. There is no survivor's encampment, number one. This is all some sort of trap. John, I'm yeah. so glad you're here because <laughs> you just helped me answer a question that I asked a while ago, oh. which is the question that I asked is how did Spock contact the Telosians and how did that happen and, and why and all that? You just said that you were talking about mm. the brilliant minds of the Telosians and you said, well, Spock's the closest to them because he's the most brilliant yeah. mind on the Enterprise. Yeah. Well, the other thing that makes Spock the closest to them is he's a telepath on some level. Great point is that yep. he's someone who can connect directly mm -hmm. with somebody's minds. And so, of course, he was able to make contact yep. telepathically with the Telosians, or they were able to make contact with him. Oh, yeah. There's no way there's an email or, a, or, or <laughs> It's all here. Right. They're that more like yeah, WhatsApp, I think. Yeah, they didn't hit yeah. each other up on Facebook, you know. Yeah, and, texting. and if they've been monitoring Pike, as you mentioned, maybe, maybe. possibly, then they reach out to Spock. Maybe Spock, as he gets older, because remember what we see in the cage is a very young, aggressive Spock. Years. As yeah, right. As he gets older, thirteen years. Maybe as Spock matures, there is a sense of the Telosians, as uh, as you mentioned, Steve, because he's a tele, uh, as, in essence, a telepath. Wow, Blah, mind blown. <laughs> we're 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 back at the trial, and we are interrupted by orders. Subspace monitors show Enterprise receiving. Transmissions from planet Talus 4, violation of Starfleet general orders. Receiving transmissions from Talus 4. And Spock goes, yeah, that's what's going on. And then they say, Captain Kirk is hereby relieved. And to Mendez, they say, you are ordered to take command and stop the Enterprise by any means necessary. I don't, don't think this makes any sense at all. What do you mean? Well, Mendez isn't there. No. There is no Mendez. Right. So this message is also an illusion. Yes. Okay, so their idea is that we want to keep this trial going in order to not have Kirk involved in things. Right. And now they're basically ending the trial and we're going to stop the Enterprise by any means necessary. It seems like we're, that would not be what they would want to well, do. But it reinforces the illusion for Kirk that this mm. is a situation that at okay. some point okay. will go in this direction. This seems logical that this would be something Starfleet would do next. Also, I, I agree with you, yeah. but I also think that the Telosians know where the Enterprise is in relation to where Talos 4 is. Yes. Right, right. So they are saying, they're trying to drag this out as much as they can mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that the Enterprise will complete its mission and reach its destination right. before mm -hmm. the gig is up. Right. So I think that they, they have it all planned out just like Spock does. Well, one of the things about screenwriting when you're writing something that's not true is that whatever you're doing has to work when you find out the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes kind of hard. And I, for me, this doesn't all perfectly track okay. at the end of what Mendez was there and what, you know, exactly why things happened the way they did. But the thing that happens right now is that Mendez says to Mr. Spock, Mr. Spock, you're aware of the orders regarding any contact with Talos IV. You have deliberately invited the death penalty. You've not only finished yourself, Spock, but you finished your captain as well. And I think Spock has the biggest reaction he has in the entire show at this moment. Mm -hmm. Because the, everything he's done was to separate, to insulate Captain Kirk from these actions. And now Commodore Mendez is saying, no, 
He's responsible for what happens on his ship, so he's in trouble too. Commodore must be aware that Captain Kirk knew nothing of this. But Spock has to react this way. Like you see Spock, Spock's Absolutely. reaction to that. Yeah. Because it's part of the illusion. Well, yeah. it, no, well no, no, Kirk could... Uh, well, oh, oh, that's a good question. I think it's part of the illusion. Okay. I Okay, hold, but hold on a second. Okay. It is, you know, it I'm is, watching Steve's head fly open right now. <laughs> it is absolutely part of the illusion. Yes. Here's something I never considered. Does Spock know that Mendez isn't real? Yes. Spock definitely did. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Does. And I think yes. everything that's happening here is supposed to happen here for Kirk. This is all about Kirk. But, but. So therefore Spock is acting yes. when he says, wait, 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 Captain Kirk shouldn't be involved. Yes. In this. Oh, okay. Well, well, also, well, the message that they're getting is being read to them by Uhura, mm-hmm. who right. definitely has no idea what's yes. going on here. True. Right. right. So, so Spock's reaction is both part of the plan, but also genuine. He is definitely having a moment where he's finally considering that, that Kirk could be in serious trouble here. Well, but if, well, this is, this is key though, because if he knows Mendez is an illusion and if he is acting, he doesn't actually think Kirk is in genuine trouble. If he doesn't know Mendez is the illusion, then he thinks that Kirk is in genuine trouble. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's genuine. So I I disagree with Scott on that, but that who knows what the point is, right? We'll have to dig up Gene and bring him back to life. But like in my, in my opinion, it is that, (laughs) it is that, (laughs) what were you thinking here, Gene? But in my my mind, uh, I think it's all part of the illusion and it's also part of the illusion for Spock to defend his captain, be upset about his captain, because mm-hmm. that allows Kirk to be magnanimous later on at the end of this whole thing and forgive Spock. It goes yet another layer to let Kirk be more understanding of the situation. I order you to return this vessel back to manual control. Sir, I respectfully decline. But it is the reaction that follows this that is absolutely genuine. Yes. It's the most moving and, and hurtful moment is when Kirk says, Do you know what you're doing? Have you lost your mind? You could see yeah. how, how hurt Kirk is. And how worried he is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, And I love Spock's response because he says, Jim, please. Yeah, that is the key. He was speaking to him as a commanding officer. That's making it personal. Now he's speaking to him as a friend. Is this the first time he calls him Jim? In no, no, he's, okay, he's okay. done it before. Um, when he it, uses that Jim, though, it's good. It's good. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Jim, please don't stop me. Don't let him stop me. It's your career and Captain Pike's life. You must see the rest of the transmission. Kirk gains his composure. Lock him up. Because Kirk is the X Factor. They have to control Kirk in some way. They have to keep Kirk manipulating and thinking it's real, this whole court-martial. Because Kirk is so smart, he can manipulate this situation to get out of it and short-circuit what Spock is trying to do. But the other thing, John, is this, is that the three of us, I think it's pretty obvious that we all, we, we love Kirk yes. and we love Shatner. And while Shatner has, has gotten sort of a rep- reputation for laying it on thick in his performance, I you know, yes, that, that did happen in later years. Um, and that did happen in the third season. But in the first two seasons of Star Trek, especially in this episode, yeah. Chadner's performance was so dialed back yeah. that he was right on point. And when you look at episodes like this and in Court Martial and Balance of Terror, Chadner was right on. He played it right on point and his it's among among his finest hours. I agree. Well, and and I think we see 
exactly what we've been talking about occurred throughout in this moment. Have do you know what you're doing? Have you lost your mind? Mm. Is concern about Spock? Yep. Lock him up is him being the captain of the yes, Enterprise. He's still the captain. That's what he has to do. Right. And that has br- brought us to the words that we only see in this episode of the original series, which is to be concluded. Oh, concluded. To be concluded. concluded. <laughs> As the credits uh, are closing out of Act 4. You know, usually those credits roll when you see the Enterprise flying in, into deep space. But in this case, his words are being shown over a long shot of Kirk alone in the... In the uh, a trial and bowing his head, just like in balance. Literally, going to say the same thing. Yeah, in balance just of like the end of balance of terror. He he takes a moment where he takes it in on a personal level. He it affects him. It affects his humanity. It is, it affects him emotionally. He gives himself a moment to feel the pain, and then he arches his back, straightens out his uniform, and he's the captain again. And he walks out of the room. And that, my friend, is great acting. Absolutely. Agreed. It's, it's so funny because To Be Continued became such a part of, it's so much a part of all television now. Yes. But at this time, this was a big deal. It was rare, yeah. Yeah, it was a really rare mm-hmm. thing. I mean, it, normally we would give our thoughts about this. You would give us some quotes about this, but I, I don't know if we're doing any of that. Well, well what I do want to do mm-hmm. is pose this question, and I would like for people listening to head over to our Facebook page. Uh, where we will have a photo posted of this moment. And we want to know when you think that Spock came up with this plan. Mm. (laughs) When when do you think that Spock came up with the plan to take Pike to Talos IV? Was it after a court-martial? Is that where he got the idea? Do you think that he got the idea after Spock found out about Pike's accident? Do you think that's when he came up with the plan to somehow get Captain Pike back to Talos Force so he can live out his life uh, with a good quality of life? Well, and how did, did how, how did he reach out to the Talosians and how mm. did this whole thing get set up? Yes, I can't wait to hear your answers. So that's do a search for Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. And by the way, if you're not a Facebook person and you want to answer this question on Twitter, it's Enter Incidents on Twitter, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And of course, you could subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube. Please, please, please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Um, And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. Scott, what about you? Well, you can catch me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mans. And Steve, speaking of of Apple Podcasts and speaking of reviews, we just want to thank you for the great reactions we've been getting for Enterprise Incidents based on your reviews. And we are so grateful to everyone who's taken the time to write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And I would like to share the most recent review we got from uh, his name, his or her name, uh, uh, Hot Base 88. Hot Base 88. Hey, Hot Base 88. Uh, thank you for your comment, which reads, Absolute pleasure. Lifelong Trek fan here, and this show has made me rediscover the original series in ways I never could have imagined. It's so amazing to hear two fans be so passionate and insightful about each episode and bring out so many facts and trivia about the franchise each time. Thank you guys for your continuing mission to seek out new facts and new fandoms while boldly going where no pod has gone before. 
That's such, it's so, it's so it's great, great hearing from all of you and we love reading these reviews and we, we certainly hope that you'll keep writing them. And if you want to go check out my other podcast with my partner, John Roca, hello, it is the cinephile Cinefiles, files. And John, usually I, I come up with uh, some episodes that might relate to the show that we just did. This was a two parter. Yeah. I was wondering what are some of your favorite multi-part episodes of the cinephiles oh every time we i think our godfather episodes most recently have been some of my favorites i think our a civil war one is certainly up there those are yeah, in those the are classics uh, for sure um and uh you know uh, right now in my mind oh um everything we've done with scott mance everything That's every true. single episode we've done with scott mance uh, you're just saying that because no. i'm sitting here these are these are legendary multi-partners even yeah. if the film is only 20 minutes long, it's still three-part series that we do or two-part series. And it's great because it shows how much love we have for these movies and also for Star Trek. So it's been a joy to be on uh, here. And if you want to reach me, you can follow me at the Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. Roll on over to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. We're changing the uh, YouTube channel to be more entertainment based so we've removed the politics show and the sports show will probably stay on but everything else is going to be more entertainment based so if you've been hesitating about visiting because some of that aspects that's all gone now so come on over and take another look at us it's there's so many good things going on in your channel although Thank i'm you. sad about the politics show cause, i understand because i like to come on every once in a while <laughs> yes. and, and vent it does not mean <laughs> it won't, won't come back as a separate podcast but well yes. well one thing we can we can expect is that this brings us to the end of our first part yes. of our deep dive onto the menagerie which means that john roca will return yeah to be concluded the <laughs> next time on enterprise incidents john roca will return as we do our deep dive on part two of the menagerie and until then keep going boldly <laughs>